This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Logic Magazine. Logic is a magazine that tries to deepen the discourse around technology. The newest issue, Beacons, presents new ways of thinking about and living with technology, drawn in particular from Black thinkers and practitioners. At a time when despair about our technological future has reached a high, this issue aims to go beyond mere critique to serve as a beacon of new possibilities. In its pages, you'll find Marxists, Winterians, Black speculative fiction, poetry written inside a cage, a graphic story about internet shutdowns in Kashmir, abolitionists, and the unaffiliated. Dig listeners can take 25% off a yearly subscription to Logic to receive all three issues per year. Logic offers both print and digital subscriptions and ships to both U.S.-based and international locations. Go to L-O-G-I-C-M-A-G dot I-O slash subscribe and enter the dig one word as your discount code. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What is cryptocurrency? And is it really currency? Or maybe instead, is it a speculative asset symptomatic of everything wrong with neoliberal financialized capitalism as we charge headlong into climate catastrophe in the absence of a communist horizon? What is blockchain? What are NFTs and how are people selling so-called real estate in the so-called metaverse? Why are promoters of cryptocurrency committed to such a techno-utopian vision when their own crypto reality is so crassly corrupt and profiteering? Why does cryptocurrency mining use a nation-state's worth of energy? How does cryptocurrency have a total market capitalization of more than $2 trillion? And how does person of the year Elon Musk fit into it all? I have been intrigued and deeply disturbed by cryptocurrency for years and wanted answer to all of these questions and more. This is part one of the two-part dig series on cryptocurrency that you and I have all been waiting for. My interview with journalists Edward Angueso Jr. and Jacob Silverman. Next week is my interview with political theorist Stefan Eich on how today's cryptocurrency fits into a longer history of neoliberal arguments for private money in the wake of the repoliticization of money initiated by the 2008 financial crisis. But first, do you want to dig tote bag or coffee mug or some left-wing books sent to you in the mail? Would you like to receive our weekly newsletter in your email inbox? Do you want the personal satisfaction of making the dig possible? All of this and more can be yours if you make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. Truly, if you can afford to contribute something, please do. We don't coerce listeners into making a contribution by hiding episodes behind a paywall because we really want the maximum number of people possible to listen to every episode. That leaves me with little leverage beyond this humble request directly to you. If you like the dig, if you depend on the dig, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. One quick thing before we get rolling. I almost never write anything since I became a podcast host, but before being a podcast host, I used to write full time. One of the only things I wrote this year, a lengthy essay on border politics, was just published at N plus one. 
please do give it a read. I will post the link in the show notes. Okay, here's Edward Angueso Jr. and Jacob Silverman. Edward Angueso Jr. is a tech reporter at Vice Motherboard and a co-host at the podcast This Machine Kills. Jacob Silverman is a staff writer at The New Republic. He is working with Ben McKenzie on a book about cryptocurrency and fraud. Edward Angueso Jr. and Jacob Silverman, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Before we get started, let's cover some really important, very basic things. For starters, what is cryptocurrency and is it actually currency? Um, You know, I think cryptocurrency, I guess a simple way to look at it is, you know, a sort of digital token that is supposed, in some cases, is just a storehouse of value and in some other cases used in some like really complicated scheme surrounding some sort of digital asset or project. But yeah, essentially just a digital token that in one way or another is supposed to be supposed to have value somehow. Yeah, I agree. I also think we're, we're getting very quickly into the question of what is value and do these things have any value? But that's the basics. And in terms of is it actually a currency, I'd say no, because most cryptocurrencies can't be readily exchanged for goods and services. And their values do fluctuate so much that it's hard to ascribe to them the relative stability of most currencies. Now, if we get even, if we follow that that line of argument, you'll have crypto people saying, well, you know, what about Lebanon or some other country with hyperinflation that their currency isn't always stable. But ideally, of course, you want a currency to something to be readily spendable, tradable and to have a steady value. And I'd say crypto is not that. Yeah, no one in Lebanon is like our currency is working in a really excellent manner right now. So if it's not a currency, what, what is it and why does it have value? And sometimes quite a bit of value. I'd say it's mostly a tool of speculation. I mean, here's where we get into ideas of irrational exuberance and sort of what defines value and even collective hallucinations, if you want to say that. But I mean, I really, I think that the the main use case, if you want to call it that for cryptocurrency, is for market speculation and creating complex and potentially uh, economically dangerous financial instruments that aren't that different from credit default swaps or things like that. But in terms of any productive value, I'd say there's none. But the main value of cryptocurrency, I think, is as, as a tool for speculation. People try to get rich on it. Edward? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, like, you know, there are there are interesting projects that come as a result of the things that people believe they have to do when they're organizing off of a cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency-backed platforms. But cryptocurrency in of itself, I don't really... I can't really see it as a currency, right? Um, even in like a generous framing or sense of that word. It is, it's for speculators and it's used largely to speculate or to facilitate like the movement of, of funds from one pocket to another to wash certain assets, whether that is increasingly just to like pump up self-dealing assets or exchanges or whether that's to pump and dump, you know, um, various coins and tokens. I mean, I cannot tell you how, and I've been surprised about it, about how like just from the beginning of getting involved on the reporting for crypto and joining groups and DAOs and, and chats, how regular the invites to 
pump and dump groups are and how many different type of pump and dump groups exist, right? Uh, there are ones that are kind that seem like functional. I mean, maybe getting ahead of myself here, but functional schemes where it's like uh, we are transparent about when we are going to pump and when we are going to dump and how much money everyone gets out of it. And here's like a nice little spreadsheet or here's a nice little log table or system for us to figure it all out. And then there are others that are chaotic. But generally speaking, it's specul speculative with really extravagant ways to do so or complex ways to do so. But that space has created some interesting things and projects and tools that might have value, but for different reasons, I think. I think people who are more pro web three or pro crypto would say, you know, all the cryptocurrencies and the pump and dump schemes are, are kind of a distraction. And the things that are really interesting are, are new types of governance using tokens and even how many you have as a way to vote on, on certain things, new types of organizations, I, I tend to think that those are kind of the, the sideshow. But, you know, in, in the defense of people who are interested in this stuff, they see new ways to store and secure data, new ways to kind of to govern organizations and things like that. And for some people, I'd say some of those folks have well intentions, but are also overlooking where most of the money and the fraud is. And also just actually real quick for listeners, we should just say a rug pull, which we mentioned earlier is basically when the the leader of a project just disappears and runs off with all the money, which happens pretty frequently, especially with NFTs or anything sort of styled as a community that needs an initial investment from people. Uh, so you have this all the time. But the pump and dump schemes are are, are both kind of interesting and a, a constant feature of of the crypto landscape. I mean, one of my sort of pet issues is what I think is a lot of market manipulation on the exchanges. I'm certainly not alone in thinking that. But here's an example, which is that I'm in a Telegram group with more than 3 million people. There's a question of how many are real, but more than 3 million people in a Telegram group. And almost every Sunday, they do a pump and dump on Binance, and they call it a pump and dump. And they what they do is they say, okay, we're, they hype up the, the group, and they say, look, we're going to... They don't announce the coin until right when the pump and dump happens or is initiated. But they hype up the group. They say, we're going to get good returns. We have all these people uh, participating. We have whales who are going to help drive the market, blah, blah, blah. And then they announce the, the coin, and it's usually some altcoin or shitcoin, as they're also called. And sometimes some people make out okay, but usually if you look at all under the hood at, at the trading data and, and all that stuff, you can see that the that someone started trading a lot of the coin before a few minutes before the official announcement which means that the people running the pump and dump bought in early and then the price usually goes down. And then at, at the end of it, they, they spin it and say, oh, we got 400% returns, all these people got in, blah, 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 see you next week. And so I think what's important about that and what's important about the crypto economy in general is that fraud and sort of manipulation, these kinds of things are almost a features of the landscape. There are people who think that you can clean up the industry and, and make it more reputable, which is possible. But right now, you have things like pump and dump schemes as a standard feature. And that happens on Binance, the, the one that I subscribe to. And it's the biggest exchange in the world. Binance must know this is happening every week. But again, it, it's it's just part of the system. And then before we get any further, what is a blockchain and how do they work? Uh, a blockchain is basically a distributed database or ledger. Their history as a technology, I think, goes back 30 years, perhaps, one thing that critics will say is that blockchain as a technology has been around for actually quite a while and hasn't necessarily found a, an adequate use case. And that's something that I hear about for a lot from people in tech who aren't on the crypto side of things. 
you know, for example, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a distributed ledger. It's a blockchain. They're immutable. So pieces get added on to the blockchain, but things don't get deleted. And so, for example, to oversee or govern Bitcoin, basically people are running the Bitcoin software on computers all over the world. When um, a transaction happens, it's appended to the blockchain and all these distributed computers running the, the, block, the Bitcoin software help ensure the security of the blockchain and that it's all recorded and everything like that. That's maybe a simple and overbroad explanation, but Ed can feel free to add any details. I mean, I think you hit it on the head, right? But that, you know, blockchain also gets a lot of focus on because there are ideas that it could be that it itself, that even if you are skeptic on every other element of crypto or every other element of things connected to crypto, like the centralized financing schemes, as an example of that, the blockchain technology is an interesting development that we can now apply to all sorts of things. Um, unrelated to crypto to facilitate uh, much more transparency or much more uh, privacy for things that might be that people might want, you know, either one of them for. Transparency because every transaction is recorded, privacy because the entities or individuals making those transactions are anonymous. Yeah, like one example I think, which is a, you know, a genuine would be a pretty interesting if it got developed, but I don't think it would because it's against a lot of people's interests. Is I saw a proposal, I think, by Decode uh, EU to try to develop some system using a blockchain that would allow for anonymous whistleblowing anywhere in the world by any government, you know, bureaucrat or and by extension also by corporate uh, workers, right? That one way or another, you'd be able to verify that it came from the place where it came from, but also you would not have to worry about that person being exposed to or have or have their uh, identity exposed, right, and revealed and, and cracked down on, which would be interesting. I mean, there's still some issues, like if it's a document that only a few people have, you know, a handle on, it's, I think you'd still be able to, like, you know, crack down a little bit and, and get a sense of who might have been responsible. But it's an interesting proposal that could be developed, right? But something like that is also not going to be developed because some of these interesting use cases also, you know, are against the interest of um, <laughs> of uh, like a corporation, right? To voluntarily establish like a trust, you know, trustworthy whistleblowing system that anybody could take advantage of and use. But still an interesting proposal nonetheless. And I think there are others like that. Jacob, do you think blockchain could potentially be used in any sort of social, socially beneficial way? I know there's some debate about this on the left. I, I am dubious. I'm not, not to say that I think that technology is inherently evil or bad or malicious. But I think in some ways we've had a, lot, a, lot, a fair amount of time actually to, to see blockchain uh, be applied in, in more useful and socially useful ways. And we haven't necessarily seen that. This isn't to discount Ed's point, which I thought was totally valid. But, you know, right now we, we do have systems that exist like SecureDrop, which let people blow the whistle. It may not be as effective or as public or as permanent and censorship, censorship resistant as something like a blockchain whistleblowing system. But I think what some people are looking for is a, a kind of revolutionary possibility with blockchain, especially people in the industry who stand to make a lot of money. And that is not necessarily apparent to a lot of folks who don't have a financial interest in this stuff. So I'm, I'm sympathetic and open to arguments from the left. I actually think it's an area personally I need to explore more, but I, I just, I don't really see it. Um, and I think also 
there are these sort of first order issues that we don't always talk about when we're critiquing this stuff. Cryptocurrency specifically, frankly, I think that currency needs to be tied to the state or to some kind of political governance. As, me- as much as I have a problem with the state and state control over things, once you have private money in general, it becomes a real problem. Uh, and we certainly had a lot of that in the 19th century with railroad bonds and, and rich people printing their own private forms of money. So there, there's a ways in which I think sort of some of the initial conditions of this technology and how it's deployed are almost a non-starter. But again, I'm open to specific use cases, but in terms of uh, the currency side of things, I, I don't see that being as emancipatory or economically liberating as, as even some people on the left seem to think it could be. Yeah. Why, given how obviously and crassly profiteering the reality of cryptocurrency is, why is it all wrapped up in such intensely utopian rhetoric? I think, you know, to Jacob's point, it's I think it's, part of it is like this desire or belief that it could provide a revolutionary break. I mean, I think about, you know, the left cases for blockchain that I'm really familiar with come largely from um uh, the blockchain socialists, right? Who proposes like you know interesting use cases, but you you know usually from thought experiments or from positions where the left has, in one case or another, seized um, power or seized you know control of housing. On one example, or seized control of like some you know large block of property, and and wants to then start figuring out schemes to create permanent public ownership, or public or permanent decentralization, or permanent public uh, governance that survives long after the parties may lose in some election or may get uh, taken down a peg in in some whatever development that might happen, right? Kind of reminds me of like ambitions for sort of cybernetic socialist management that we've seen throughout history. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that I think that's a I think that is a good way to put it, right? There is like a fusion. There is a there's a technocratic threat through it, definitely. There's some of this debate about central planning and and I think like you know returning as a lot of the debates do to like the to the calculation debate about like whether or not you can actually uh, sit down and plan an economy if you have enough information and if you have enough uh, you know real time inputs and 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 ways to organize and distribute. Uh, resources after the after you know input and after production but i think like all of this also kind of assumes that this is that the momentum that the right and that the momentum that capitalists have with blockchain is something that can be stopped or overcome or you know frustrated and i don't think it can i think like at this point you know it is like firmly embedded inside of financialization and that most of the developments and most of the ways that the technology is developed and most of the ways that it applied and most of the use cases are used solely to advance really esoteric forms of commodification and privatization and and more ways to money launder, more ways to speculate or more ways to financialize that I'm not comfortable with. I don't think we, one, I don't think the task of rolling all of that back and then trying to reapply it for for leftist purposes, makes much sense. And I would much rather just get rid of all of that altogether and then figure out as we're developing a new society, society, if that's the case, if we want to go with that revolutionary example on the utopian rhetoric, what can stay and what doesn't stay. And I feel like, yeah, I think a lot of the revolutionary logic sees, part of it understands and recognizes that it is captured almost exclusively by capitalist logics, by like, you know, uh, capitalist applications and use cases. And and if we could liberate it from all that, then we would have the world, you know, before us. Well, I think there are a couple of features going on here. One, to, to 
to add slightly to what what Ed was saying is I think also you know you've had decades of right wing and Republican led attacks on government and sort of hollowing out of government. So a lot of things don't work or are ineffective or institutions are corrupt. And so part of that utopian mission that people apply to crypto, especially on the right, is that this is the escape from our mangled politics and our broken institutions that we've been waiting for. Of course, that same right wing has a lot of responsibility for getting us to this place. I am puzzled why people see big fortunes being made by some really ridiculous characters and see that as somehow (laughs) inspiring or or liberating. I mean, one thing I say about Bitcoin culture, which I find it interesting, of course, because that's why I write about crypto and Bitcoin, but it's pretty crass and it's like hyper masculine. It's mostly dudes. It's it's very classist. You know, some one of the most common memes is have fun staying poor. I actually think some of the memes are funny, but in terms of, they're all very revealing of how these people operate and the, the cultural and financial values that people are holding. And so you can find people who do believe in the community stuff, who do believe in, in some form of economic liberation or emancipation. But there are a lot of people who are just like bros trying to get rich and trying to ride the latest coin to the moon and and think Elon Musk is great or all the Bitcoin influencers like Michael Saylor and all these other people. So what bothers me about that also, besides the sort of crassness and rudeness of it all, is just how it seems really disconnected from any sense of society or common social interests or just caring about other people. You have a couple phrases in uh, and memes in crypto, like uh, not going to make it is one uh, and we are all going to make it. And you hear a lot more we're not going to make it applied to people. But there's this, this sense of, you know, if you don't get it, you're going to either have fun staying poor or you're not going to make it. And it's too bad for you. There's, there are not a lot of positive inducements to to investing in this stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it off to Ed there. But I mean, I, I think I think the utopian stuff you can talk about in a couple different ways. I mean, there's some really ugly libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, far right-wing stuff. And then there are just people who don't want to pay taxes and want to be left alone by the state, I think. You know, one of the principal appeals that people make for crypto is that you're, especially like things like NFTs or DAOs or whatever, is that you're you're joining community. And honestly, not to be simplistic about it or too binary, but I think a lot of things that crypto claims to be, it's the opposite. A big thing for me is this argument about decentralization. And I think it's rhetorically powerful for people, but it's rather limited. And I think once you you drill down, you realize that, one, any sense of decentralization is kind of specious because crypto, especially Bitcoin, is very concentrated in a small number of of accounts. I I don't remember exactly, but it's the sort of wealth inequality in Bitcoin is even more uh, extreme than it is in in the, the fiat general dollar society. Including the account of Satoshi Nakamoto. Whoever that is. Oh, yeah, which I think has billions in it. Also, uh, I mean, all this sort of gestures towards egalitarianism and decentralizing power and redistributing power, I think are just facetious or wrong because what you're really doing is sort of reshuffling power relations. I almost think that there's kind of like a ther- thermodynamic law of power. Like you're, you're not going to necessarily get rid of power from a system. Instead, you're going to redistribute it and who has authority and who can take advantage of the rules and and things like that. And I think that's a problem you see throughout, especially decentralized finance, DeFi, where there have been a lot of rug pulls and a lot of people stealing money and a lot of people put trust in the code there, especially that, oh, if we just code the right smart contracts and everything, we don't need people, we don't need institutions. But what you realize is this idea of decentralization and sort of diffusing power, even getting rid of 
human decision makers, it's actually quite ineffective and can make whole new kinds of complications. So there's there's all this utopian rhetoric about, you know, creating a new world, decentralized power, free of arbitrary government authority. But but then there's also this day to day discourse on Reddit or Telegram or wherever with these memes making fun of poor people. Does the crypto bro world as it actually exists, does it bother drawing much on the sort of libertarian cypherpunk godfathers of cryptocurrency? Or has the day to day crypto discourse really dispensed with a lot of that pretense? How do those two things fit together? There's probably a couple ways to divide this up. I firmly think that crypto sort of entered the influencer and celebrity realm. Uh, This is something I've written about a bit. And also the cult of personality and arguably religion realm. And, And so you see a lot of people on Twitter and other places who are just pumping up the latest uh, crypto influencers and love that they're really dumb, inspirational sayings and stuff like that. And everyone is rising, grinding every day and hustling and <laughs> watching their bag go up and stacking sats, which is the, the term for buying Satoshi's, the, the smaller increments of Bitcoin. You know, it's it's become this sort of like this brotastic Miami rise and grind, get, get your bag culture based around these influencers who are pretty much all dudes. And some of them are, and some of them have pretty sketchy histories, but that's a whole other matter. And then I think in a lot of ways that has displaced the sort of original cypherpunk uh, libertarian freedom oriented tendencies and sort of freedom through technology, which itself maybe was a, a kind of tired line of intellectual inquiry, not to say it's not worth thinking about, but I think by now we know that computers are not going to free us. But, and also the other thing I'd add is that this market has just become so valuable. Uh, I, I can't, tell you the market cap of, tr- of Bitcoin off my head, I think it's over a trillion, but the overall market cap of, of crypto is like two and a half trillion dollars. So there's, there's real money Crazy. here now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of, one thing that I'd be glad to talk about is there's a lot of VC money going into some of these companies. So it's not just people at home using their stimulus checks to buy some Ethereum and hoping it goes up. There's serious money, there's serious trading, like there are hedge funds and other firms who are doing high frequency trading on the exchanges. So in a sense, that all trends towards both the professionalization and also kind of the influencer and celebrification of crypto, where it is whatever legitimate or earnest original ideological roots it might have had, whether you agree with them or not, I think a lot of that's been kind of abstracted away. There's some people still believe in that, some influential people still believe in that. But as sort of that, that original sort of basis of personal freedom, I think is a lot of window dressing for a lot of people now. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree with that. I think like, you know, one thing that we've Definitely, you know, we mind meld on and uh, have conflicted with a lot of people about is like the projection of politics onto decentralization and and onto key parts of this technology when in reality, it's not really decentralized at all, you know, like whether it is like the amount of people that can actually implement or develop these uh, projects, whether it's like the places in which they actually have, to, you know, the the coins where you can actually go to to build a platform, whether it's the type of communities or the investors or the money that gets poured into it. It is not like this cornucopia of decentralized. Every person is like a cowboy in this like imagined settler frontier of the wild west and you can stake out you know land you know that you're stealing from from someone i mean in 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 a vague sense there's that that... i think of it like the homestead act but but in but in the metaverse (laughs) right (laughs) you know which actually funnily enough i mean like some of the rhetoric that 
or some of the because of that imagination that underpins some of the legislation and the rhetoric behind it. I mean, like when people are passing laws, for example, in Puerto Rico to incentivize the migration of you know people with large crypto holdings to that you know to the country to to Puerto Rico, they are partially doing it because they imagine like they don't really imagine Puerto Rico is a real place. They imagine it is like fresh ground to be settled by real businessmen and by real wealthy individuals who can really develop the country. You know, when actually, if you spend any time talking uh, to people who have moved there, uh, they're going there because they don't want to fucking pay taxes and they really don't have any interest in paying <laughs> into uh, Puerto Rico at all, right? They just want to go there because no fucking taxes because they made $300 million on crypto one year and they really don't want to fucking pay you know, a million dollars in taxes or more. You know, So they'd rather just move to another fucking uh, place. And I think like a lot of it, there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of rhetoric that is used and deployed and, as re- and, and has all these sorts of politics attached to it. And as a result, people are engaging with like a false conception of what crypto and what you know Bitcoin and what decentralized finance and what all these things actually represent because of the, the constant battle over the politics or the arguing about what the politics actually are and, and, and the insistence that it's a liberatory technology, right? And that this is something that will disrupt to the benefit of everyone, every institution, as so long as they integrate it into themselves some way or somehow, right? And that gives a lot of room for grifters, that gives a lot of room for influencers, that gives a lot of room for ideologues, that gives a lot of room for VCs, that gives a lot of room for all these people who have all these interests that are contrary to anything that resembles you and people that you know <laughs> having like a better life and more money in your pocket and more autonomy, right? Jacob, you write that cryptocurrency operates a lot like a multi-level marketing scheme or MLM. And indeed, the internet in general, and maybe TikTok in particular, is full of literally promotions for companies like Herbalife and Avon. You write, quote, as with an MLM, coiners recommend addressing adversity, a decline in Bitcoin's value, by recommitting to the program. Buy the dip goes a common piece of advice which serves as a half-ironic rallying cry when the market turns bare. Many coiners claim they are hodling, and a note to listeners, that's the word holding with the D and L changing place, if I have it right, hodling or holding onto Bitcoin for the long term, meaning years or even decades. But treating the asset with this kind of generational reverence is another way of attempting to artificially infuse it with meaning and value. How does this internet culture around cryptocurrency take shape and nurture this collective commitment to hodling? What what does that culture look like? How, how do people participate in it? And what do you think it offers people, I guess, in like socio-emotional terms? Well, uh, for, for some people, it really provides the kind of meaning I think that they're seeking in Bitcoin. Um, again, I don't, I'm not joking when I say that there are aspects of it that's, that resemble a religion or a cult. Uh, it has sacred texts. It has sort of overarching figures. It has a hidden messiah in Satoshi Nakamoto. It has the potential for revolution or, or liberation if one only abides by the program or kind of some kind of salvation. So I think there are people who are, you know, really true believers in that way. Uh, some people we call Bitcoin maximalists. That's a term that even people who really believe in Bitcoin will invoke to describe themselves. But I think it, to, to varying degrees, it provides sort of a, a community, a social purpose, a, a, a binding agent that brings people together. You know, a big part of, of Bitcoin is just this 
which is also a meme, is number go up, which means, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoiners will tell you why Bitcoin has inherent value. They'll say, oh, it's scarce. You know, it's secured by the soft by the blockchain and the software. And there are all these reasons that they propose why a Bitcoin is not worth zero. But really, for a lot of crypto, and I include Bitcoin and crypto, that's a separate thing also is now Bitcoiners don't want Bitcoin referred to as crypto, but whatever. But a lot of it is really just about this shared delusion that number go up, that as people gain interest and build a culture around it, and as most importantly, build attention about on it on social media with fake accounts, ampl- amplification, likes, all that stuff that means, all that stuff that pumps stuff up over social media, that then the value goes up. So in a lot of ways, that is like an MLM, including the sense of, of ownership and belonging. It's also, there's something called the, the greater fool theory in economics, uh, which is basically that some assets don't really have inherent value. You simply have to find someone who's a bigger fool than you, who thinks it's worth more than you do, and then you sell it on. That's what happens in Bitcoin. Greater fool all the way. It's just finding someone who thinks it's more valuable than you do and selling it on to them. In terms of the, the generational thing, I think there are a couple ways of looking at that. So I don't mean to be a jerk, but you said hodlers. Some people say hodlers. And I'm only saying that because the the crypto people who might listen to this podcast will will ding us for that. Prepare to be owned. Yeah, I know. They'll say they have no idea what they're talking about. No, I think the hodlers. It's like those gun nuts who are like, actually, that's not an automatic weapon. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's the the assault rifle debate. I'm sorry I'm not crazy (laughs) and precisely the way you are. Exactly. (laughs) I, and I think some hodlers really want to believe that, hey, I'm I'm investing in an asset that my grand my grandkids will derive yield from or be able to sell. And I think some of them would just want to believe in the thing like, hey, I'm not just buying digital snake oil or something. And then there are people who I think say that to sort of juice the market. For example, Michael Saylor, who's the head of this company called uh, MicroStrategy, who's one of the biggest Bitcoin whales. And has basically converted his enterprise software company into a vehicle for raising debt and buying Bitcoin. He keeps talking about how they're never going to sell. I don't yeah. believe that. It's possible. <laughs> it's um, it, I also would, wouldn't be surprised if they had already sold uh, through some some uh, subsidiary or something like that. But you know, they say that because they want to hype up this as a truly revolutionary asset that everyone needs to have. I mean, you have people like the Winklevoss twins who run an exchange and and are deeply in the crypto world. They'll say, like, if you're not buying Bitcoin, you're missing out. It's the whole FOMO thing. Like, you need to be doing this. Sailor likes to say, buy, borrow, or steal to buy buy crypto. See, I don't know that saying from him because he's blocked me. Um, But but he's, yeah, he's ridiculous. He's one of sort of the high priests of Bitcoin. Uh, he, He shouldn't be taken very seriously, but he does have a big following especially among these sort of rise and grind influencer types. But, and then there's, there's also this company called Grayscale, which is basically an investment vehicle that just buys tons of Bitcoin. There's also some suspicion that they're selling Bitcoin, which I wouldn't state with any definitiveness. But what you see from these institutional entities that are buying lots of Bitcoin and preaching the HODL mindset is that this is how you create generational wealth in a new way. I have my doubts, and I also have my doubts that some of the people who are the loudest hodlers are actually hodling. <laughs> Edward? You know, I'm with you on that. I think there, I mean, there's a lot of bluster, right? Part, some of them may, I mean, because you can verify with their with their wallets, you know, and, and to an extent, look at their transactions. But there are others who are not going to offer that up. 
And there are others who just have like a vested interest in hyping or in buying or in for a specific time. Like as you, as you know, Jacob talked about, MicroStrategy has been behind some of the key price booms of Bitcoin, right? Uh, by being such a large holder of it, you know, Jacob wrote about did a really great profile of this of of the of Michael Saylor and you know highlighted this and I think that you know if you really look close a lot of people a lot of whales a lot of influencers in one way or another speak the way that did it do less so because they believe in it and more so because they have a vested interest in doing and in, in, in pushing it you know you know if you really like the people I would I would believe the people who are spending a time building some sort of technology that's built on one or another token much earlier than I would believe someone who's like just bought it right and holding it. But even then, I mean, like some, you know, as we've talked about, some people will just build things out uh, because it's easy to build something out and scam people with it, or it's easy to build something up that traps people in it and eventually builds enough value for you to justify exiting. And so building it or buying it is not a guarantee that you actually believe it or that you're actually um, some, or that you actually have faith in it, or you're actually trying to build something uh, beneficial with it, right? Because this is in many ways, you know, as, again, as Jacob pointed out, it has religious or you know cultish undertones, right? So you have to. There are multiple things that you have to look for if you're really actually trying to figure out whether someone is trying to sell you snake oil, is taking the snake oil themselves, or has created like some actual thing that might be one day FDA approved. I guess in that metaphor, you know. <laughs> Edward, you wrote you wrote about Spike Lee recently starring in this commercial promoting. CoinCloud, which is a company that runs cryptocurrency ATMs, whatever those are. Our currency is not current. Old money, as rich as it looks, is flat out broke. Don't believe me? I got the receipts. We call it green, but it's only white. Where's the women? The black folks and the people of color. Native Americans got a nickel. A nickel! People don't even stop to pick up a nickel off the side. Seven million Americans have no bank account. Twenty million are underbanked. Old money's not gonna pick us up. It pushes us down, exploits, systematically oppresses. But new money, new money is positive, inclusive, fluid, strong. Culturally rich. Where status is anything but status quo. What's going on here? Is this just the ordinary spirit of capitalism of this moment where any and every corporation adopts a superficial identity politics to legitimate their plunder and exploitation? Or does this reflect something more particular about the ideology surrounding crypto? I think there are a few things here. Part of this is that Spike Lee is someone who has gone to bat for shady enterprises or watchable enterprises. I mean, like he made a series of short films for Uber that basically in like 2018 that uh, painted um, gig work as liberatory, as emancipatory, as like the Republic of Brooklyn. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. And so like, you know, this is something that you... I think a lot of people were shocked at the time when he did the commercials, but that, you know, if you follow him, 
I think it's easy to be shocked because of the films that he's made. But if you follow what he will do sort of in public life and the collaborations that he does with a corporation like Uber, who we have had documentation for a long time is an exploitive enterprise. And you see what's going on here. Like he, he genuinely believes or he's someone who may genuinely believe that this is um, something liberatory and something that uh, can free people specifically underbanked minorities. And that then moves on to the second point where like there is both, uh, I think, like a sort of deceptive move and also like a like a misunderstanding move where people there is this genuine belief uh, or there is there's some people who believe and insist that because of those who are unbanked or underbanked and they don't have access to the financial services that they need in this country, specifically black and brown people, that crypto can bridge that gap for them. And then there are other people who are see that and want to take advantage of it and want to bring them onto it and want to inflate either the numbers or the amount of liquid uh, capital that's flowing around in crypto. Um, because the more people that are using it, the more places that it is, is just good. It doesn't really even matter if the people who are using it get wiped out. What it just matters is that they, you know, go to the altar and pray and then offer up, you know, a sacrifice. And then that's that's more or less fine with them. But like when you actually look or examine the numbers, right? Like let's say that people that the people who can't afford a bank account need some sort of financial service and that there's a lot of people, specifically minorities, who are underbanked, right? And unbanked. Why would it make sense for you to give them a volatile asset? Why would it make sense, especially when most Americans don't have retirement savings, don't have uh, any sort of stocks, don't have like really any sort of connection to financial markets, don't have the money for emergencies? Why do you think that it makes sense for you to expose them to a speculative, risky enterprise, which eats, you know, the lunches of most people who get into it, especially when like, Again, like these are people, these are households that have less wealth to begin with, right? And then are also underbanked. It, it doesn't make sense unless you then link it to this, this, some of the ideologies that are working around here. This idea that, you know, that crypto, that uh, financial apps, that fintech, these are going to democratize finance as if you could democratize, you know, one of the engines of capitalism and, it, and its attempt to eat every single fucking thing in this world right? You're not going to democratize finance any more than you're going to democratize Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. And, and the idea that giving people access to an app, the idea that giving people some coins or fractions of a coin, the idea that giving people a wallet will do any of this is PR. It's bullshit, you know, and it's constructed finally to touch the right uh, places and pressure points and buttons so that people don't actually step back and think about how like this is not what that's doing at all you just it's just increasing the amount of people that adopt your service or it's just something that you believe in because you're dealing with the rhetoric and the superficial analysis that the rhetoric is attached to like we we're talking about like the superficial understanding of what the technology and what crypto actually is versus like okay can it actually solve this problem or just make it worse jacob I think that's excellent. And that also gets to a, a couple of things that we should probably discuss. But there, there is some interesting reporting about how members of minority groups, especially black and brown folks, have are sort of overrepresented in crypto uh, because a lot of people feel shut out legitimately of the traditional banking system. And this is where you get into a strange kind of dialectic with crypto people, which is uh, every day I get accused of being a shill for fiat and central banking and the existing <laughs> banks. And it's like, no, I, I hate those people. Um, but 
it doesn't mean that crypto is the answer to financial liberation, uh, just as Ed was talking about. I mean, postal banking would probably do a lot more good for poor people and unbanked people than any crypto measure would. So it is perfectly of a piece with the Spike Lee commercial with how um, crypto would like it to itself to be seen. Uh, and certainly the more the kind of more corporate identity politics inflected version of that you have. I mean, the hustler dudes d- don't really care about identity politics. Um, but I think that's that's the trap we sometimes fall into when we're debating crypto people or that they want to draw you into, which is that, oh, you just, you know, you think JP Morgan is good or whatever. But what Ed said about how you're not going to democratize Goldman is great, I think, because there's this idea also that democratizing finance as a specific phrase is a good thing. And I just don't think so, because I think what crypto does, it sort of turns you into a form of, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but homo economicus, right, you know, right. or crypto or cryptonomicus. Like you are a purely economic crypto oriented being because, well, for one thing, these markets run 24 seven. They're totally unregulated. So your bag, as it's called, your account could be fluctuating all day and all night long. So there are reasons to check it all the time. And it's volatile. And you're always just thinking in terms of the value of things around you and and what kinds of sort of leverage or arbitrage situations you can take advantage of. And I think that's a terrible way to think about money. So I'm co-writing some stuff with Ben McKenzie, an actor who's doing some writing now. And we think a lot about money and you know, basic questions of what should money do and how should we think about it. And one of my fundamental problems with crypto and that something that Ben and I have talked about is it makes you think about money even more. It makes it even more of a presence in your life. Now, of course, if you're struggling for for money, if you're poor, it's hard not to think about money. But there are ways in which you don't want to financialize everything and turn everything into an opportunity to sort of tokenize, financialize, and securitize and turn physical assets into virtual assets when you don't need to. But Jacob, this is the same reason that Bush wanted to privatize social security so that you have the so-called freedom to invest in the stock market or school vouchers or anything that shapes one's subjectivity into a neoliberal one and makes that the rational way for one to approach one's mode of being and survival in the world, to financialize it. Yeah. And I I think uh, there's a guy named Stephen Deal. I believe it's D-I-E-H-L. He's a British computer scientist. He's great. He writes about some of this stuff. And recently he wrote something to the effect of the real innovation in a lot of ways in crypto is a financial one. The ability to tokenize and financialize things and turn things into financial assets that previously were not. So I think in a lot of ways that the the technological innovation is, is pretty secondary or unimpressive. It's really this ability to create markets and create digital assets around things that previously had no value or weren't necessarily enmeshed in an economic exchange. Now you can practically bet on anything or take out a futures contract on anything. And I think it will only get sort of more concentrated and more severe. Or more, I mean, you'll have, a, under sort of the crypto worldview, you could have a thousand decision points during your day where you decide like which coin you want to use on something or how you want to stake your existing investment in order to get this amount of interest. And, and I mean, I could go on and on. But my, my real worry is that we're just financializing more of daily life and more of, the vir- of virtual life in ways that, of course, come with the patina of, of, liberiz- of liberation, but really are about making the whales and the VCs and the market movers have more control over these new markets. Edward, in terms of those The Republic of Brooklyn Uber promotion films, it, is the mystification surrounding the gig economy similar or maybe even 
identical to the forms of mystification that legitimate cryptocurrency, because just as Jacob was just talking about, in both cases, there's this notion that the technology is what's special about Uber or about Bitcoin, when in fact, the tech is a bit of a, a sideshow. It, it's, it is the mystification, ostensibly the, the technological liberation embodied by the gig economy. It'll make you a successful entrepreneur or cryptocurrencies technology will reward you ordinary people for, I don't know, being savvy. I'm not sure. But in both cases, it's mostly just rich people getting richer, capitalist exploitation and plunder as usual, but with a new spirit for the times to justify it all. Is that the key thing linking the the gig economy and cryptocurrency? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point. You know, this is one of the reasons why I'm a Luddite, because I think when a lot of times when people talk about tech, what they're really talking about is digitization, it's privatization through digital means, right? Um, uh, public goods and services. Enclosure. And then, yeah, enclosure. And then they develop technologies that do that very thing and foreclose the possibility of socially productive technology that actually solves a political problem in a way that helps as many people as possible without commodifying the thing or without putting it on the market or without introducing transactions into it. And so a lot of the times when what we're talking about when we're talking about this or that exciting form of technology is like this or that exciting phase of enclosure that and in the gig economy that exciting phase was the vc subsidizing uh the the widespread use of a taxi dispatch application that they developed so that you would be trapped on it and then, then they could cut the you know the wages for the drivers and then they could, could cut uh the subsidies themselves and extract more monopoly prices from everybody and here it feels like the exciting part of the enclosure is the early returns that everyone would get and also like the really extravagant schemes to 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 take advantage of ar- the really extravagant arbitrage schemes right because since the technology still and since a lot of these exchanges, a lot of these coins, a lot of the the mechanisms for pairing or connecting these things are still in, in development, right? There's still a lot of times where you can go to one market or one uh, or another market, take advantage of mismatched and price mismatched mismatched prices and leak off the difference as profits, right? And then build extravagant tools, exploits, hacks, uh, scams that do that sort of thing on larger and larger scales, right? So I think part of the exciting closure is like there's a lot of creative ways to not create value, but suck it up in some place that didn't properly calibrate the market, right? Or that didn't properly uh, account for the risk of someone sitting around waiting for some opportunity to exploit or developing something that waits around for an an opportunity to exploit. And then once that is gone, you're going to have to deal with the hard reality that what is left is something that does, hasn't really genuinely produced value. Just redistribute it to a few people's pockets or to some pool where people pour value that they have already in and then they can be sucked out. I agree that the technology is rather secondary in a lot of ways. I mean, actually, in the case of Bitcoin, the technology is arguably actively harmful. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the number one critique of Bitcoin, which is that the environmental and electrical requirements are huge and only growing. I think what happens in crypto a lot is you get, understandably, because some people don't want to debate these first order issues, like should money be bound to the state? For me, that's that's become a fairly clear answer. Another one of these first order issues, I think, with Bitcoin is, is it worth the environmental toll? And it simply isn't, especially as it's kind of increasing over time and rivaling whole countries. It doesn't... produce enough productive value to justify that environmental toll. Um, so the technology, uh, it, whether 
it's we're talking about Bitcoin or just a, a taxi app, I think are almost secondary and a gloss that that is provided to try to to try to mystify and impress people, I think. But what you really have is something like what Ed described, which is the worker or the or the investor or the person w- uh, holding the bag is just kind of put on the front lines without any support. So it's a driver with very little uh, professional or social support or financial support, or you have an economic actor, an individual investing in crypto with almost no support because if if you're if your account goes under uh, or you're stolen from, you don't have any FDIC insurance. You're you're totally out of luck. So it's it's supposed liberation, but without any of the ins- governing institutions, laws, or supporting mechanisms that would ostensibly help people when trouble strikes. In the Coin Cloud commercial, Spike Lee tells viewers to do your own research. Incidentally, that's exactly the same phrase that conspiracists pushing things like QAnon instruct would-be sheeple to do. What does the identical phrasing reveal? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it is, it's like, this is not financial advice, and then proceeds to give you really intense financial advice, right? These are things that are obligatory disclaimers that are being directed at people who are usually atomized and desperate and seeking uh, something, uh, some sort of authoritative answer to this or that question, right? And to and to say, do your own research while presenting in a glitzy, prepackaged, reviewed, edited, scripted ad is a bit disingenuous, right? Do your own research. Here's something that I'm presenting as research because of how finally produced it looks and is, right? Because of my, they chose me because I'm authoritative voice. And so do your own research, but also like, Listen to me, you know, like it's, it's, and similarly with, I think with conspiracy theories, I think conspiracy theories are slightly different in that, you know, they may hold like an even larger sort of like a theory of the world for people. And you're, and you get presented that whole thing that's supposed to be this, you know, completely self-referential, explains everything, causal ex, ex, uh, framework or explanation for how the world works and why these things are happening. And for someone to tell you do your own research while they're bringing you into that is also disingenuous, but for a different reason than that, like, you're, you're down the fucking rabbit hole already. And I think that with crypto, though, it is analogous to that, right? You're going down the rabbit hole. This person is telling you do your own research, but they're bright neon signs behind them saying, like, you here here's why you should keep coming down the rabbit hole with me but do your own do your own research i think there's also this assumption for a lot of people and not even assumption it's stated often that like if you spend enough time in the crypto world you will have your moment of epiphany so it, to build on what ed was saying it's like keep going down the rabbit hole do your own research and eventually you're going to realize whether you've been reading enough Jack Dorsey tweets or you read some Murray Rothbard or you learn about going off the gold standard or whatever sort of mishmash of Austrian economics and kind of anti-government stuff and and fake populism that the Bitcoin people are summoning, uh, uh, that, that will lead you to your transformation. And for some people, it's also a technical thing. They, they start to realize that Bitcoin is somehow perfectly designed. I mean, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, has talked about how he thinks the Bitcoin code is basically perfect and and things like that. So there's sort of the technical worship of it, but then there's also this the, the ideological stuff and and the kind of butchering of history in which people decide that you know Bitcoin is what is what you need, and it's also uh, the great response to inflation, which 
coincidentally is something that's being pushed constantly right now by coiners, this idea that we're going through terrible inflation. Um, not to deny that some inflation is incurring, but you know, the, this is all how it's sort of adapted to the circumstances of what's going on in public life. Yeah, the, ideologically, it's do your own research, but do your own research and falling down the rabbit hole towards our direction, and eventually you'll be a true believer like, like us. It's like the Protestant Reformation, like, fuck the intermediation of the priests. You're supposed to find the truth through your own personal relationship with God, but you're going to find a truth that is the same one that I found or your heretic. Yeah, precisely, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure you will get a good, a, a, a nice, healthy dose of constructive uh, criticism from uh, crypto people after listening to this episode, especially some of them on the left, right? Because I mean, in my, I generalize and I painted with a brush, but I mean, my sentiment is I just do not fundamentally agree with a lot of the defenses of crypto and a lot of the proposals and the use cases that are, you know, offered up. They're interesting. They're interesting and they're intellectually like stimulating and things to think through, but I don't think that they're applicable. We're not in that world. And, you know, really we're fighting against forces that of, of capital and, and financiers who have like taken hold of how people think about this thing, how it just talked about and how it is deployed and are also the ones that are driving the development of it, right? And that is a, an, an unholy triumvirate of people that need to be uprooted, not like displaced and then subsumed into like a more benevolent regime of uh, enlightened de deployment of blockchain. And so I think like, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like, it is such like a deeply, it's just, it's just a lot, there's, I have a lot of problems with it, right? That uh, I, I'm just, I, I can't bring myself to not be a skeptic, even when I see interesting use cases that I'm like, oh yeah, you know, in another world, that would be, be nice. It would be nice if we could somehow figure out a way to use blockchain, for example, to fix, to solve housing crises. And there are proposals for that, right? That it's not in the cards, neither here nor there. But rent control and just public and social ownership of housing would probably be a more straightforward way to go about that. And that, of course, requires solving the problem of how the left wins political power. J Jacob, you write, quote, coiners like to say that Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing department, but that's not exactly true. Bitcoin has no centralized authority to promote it, but it does have cryptocurrency exchanges, venture capitalists, industry influencers, tech moguls, blockchain startups, sycophantic media outlets, and, and all sorts of other parties whose moneyed interests lie in boosting the reputation, the ubiquity, and consequently the value of Bitcoin. The hype found its way to mainstream banks like JP Morgan. Bitcoin, though lacking a marketing department, resembles, once again, a multi-level marketing scheme. And You've mentioned all of these kind of social media influencers, also major figures like Mark Cuban and Kim Kardashian have promoted crypto, but no one has promoted it more feverishly than Elon Musk. But then in May, Musk suddenly announced on Twitter that Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin anymore. This after being Bitcoin and I think Dogecoin being those coins, the most prominent hype man alive. What impact did Musk's promotion have on cryptocurrency, and what do you make of the sudden change in tack? Well, I, I think we have to keep in mind that uh, this is an influencer and sort of media and attention-driven market. You know, to use a recent term about meme stocks, basically everything is a meme coin. The I mean, the price of Bitcoin does fluctuate according to some market fundamentals potentially, or when the SEC is is talking about doing something, but really. You know, when the most the richest man in the world is talking about Dogecoin on Twitter, that moves the number. The number goes up because Elon Musk is talking about Dogecoin on Twitter. And 
for me, this gets to one of my sort of pet issues, which is that besides not being liberatory or emancipatory in any way, um, this is not, these are not equal or fair markets, but they're totally unregulated, of course, uh, except for there are a couple of US based exchanges, but everything is pretty much unregulated. The markets run 24 seven. There are very few mechanisms that deal with crashes or, or sudden swings in prices. And you have the exchanges all kind of they're basically vertically integrated whether where different sort of responsibilities that NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange would, would farm out between different entities and companies, in some cases required by law, uh, are all done on Binance or all done on FTX or whatever. The other thing I, I add, I'd add, which uh, about Musk and some of these other people, you know, it's hard to prove, but <laughs> I think crypto is really run by a small number of people, the crypto markets. Um, that's not to say it's all a cabal or a cartel working together, but look, the people who run FTX and Binance and Tether and these uh, and some of these other big firms, they all know each other. They talk to each other. They invest in each other's companies. They trade on each other's platforms. And so there is a way in which crypto is is sort of an oligarchy or or influenced heavily by both behind the scenes executives at these big company, big exchanges and other companies and the celebrity executives or influencers like Musk. As to why he turned against Bitcoin, he does try to hold himself out as an environmental savior. But I don't know. Sometimes with Musk, the answers aren't always logical or they're more mercurial or more be like he thought he was being funny that day by tweeting for 2069. I also wonder if there were some practical and legal problems and accounting problems with actually selling cars for Bitcoin. Uh, I suspect there, there's something like that. I think sometimes Musk gets stoned and, and thinks he's being funny on Twitter, and then his lawyers come and say, "Actually, you can't do that," or or you or you can't tweet about that because you have an agreement with the SEC yes. to monitor what you tweet. <laughs> um, to so, not announce uh, market moving information yeah, on so, Twitter. <laughs> exactly, not to announce that you're going to take the company private at four hundred twenty dollars a share because the Saudis are going to let you or something. So. I think that's this all speaks to what people need to really realize if they're thinking about gambling in this market. And Ben, who I write with, we always call it, we often refer to it as gambling and you need to gamble only as much as you can afford to lose. But there are people with a lot more money and a lot more power who are involved in these markets and who are working to make a lot of money and ensure you lose your money as soon as you buy in. And despite the illusion of democratization and anything goes and anyone can strike it rich, the, the stories of everyday people doing well are going to be few and far between, but we're going to have plenty of influencers and plenty of, of new crypto capitalists and moguls who are going to be spreading the word and hiring Tom Brady to spread the word and all that kind of stuff to say, no, this is the new liberating way to get rich. There seems to be so many layers of convergence between Musk and cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's market cap reminds me a lot of Tesla's market cap, for example. And then more abstractly, Musk and cryptocurrency... They seem like both essentially the the same ideological and discursive force in this present moment of capitalist history. Yeah, you know, like there's a core nugget in Tesla that works and is good and is better than the competitors, and that is its electric cars, supposedly, right? That does not justify the market cap. What justifies the market cap is all these all this bullshit that he promises, all the nonsense about self-driving cars and robot taxis and going to the fucking moon and the fact that he's the richest man on the world. You know, all of this creates a self-sustaining uh, series of factors that in a by that at this point now feel as real as market fundamentals. It's a one trillion yeah. dollar market cap. 
One trillion dollars. It's like, I don't care how good your electric vehicles are. It's not worth a trillion dollars. Your company is not worth it. But but if you really also buy into the into the um, into the cinematic universe he's constructed, where he's also going to take us to the Mars and he's also going to create like a, a, a revolutionary uh satellite system and also he's going to radically reduce the cost of propulsion up into the atmosphere and that will revolutionize our ability to build more shit up there and then he's also going to revolutionize the supply chains in the in the, in the world and then he's also going to revolutionize traffic and transit mind all that then yeah yeah the company's worth a trillion dollars right and you're getting it as a at a bargain right now and similarly with bitcoin if you really do believe that bitcoin is <laughs> <laughs> it's going to become the world reserve currency of the world <laughs> in a few years, right? Or if you believe that this is going to be the future core of a financial system that is not plutocratic and that is actually peer-to-peer and decentralized and trustless and all this other stuff, right? All these other words that are used to signify uh, future distinct from the one that we have now. Then, yeah, then crypto is worth $69,000 or whatever it is right now and should be worth more. Even though that doesn't also doesn't make sense, and like, okay, how are you gonna have a currency that is um, constantly where the value doesn't really seem that moored in reality, right? But that's that's a question to solve for another day. What it is is like both of them have some core thing which may or may not actually be very valuable, but if you believe it is very valuable, but it also doesn't really justify the value of it at all. The constantly rising value that is then used to also that is leveraged. To justify all these other extravagant things. Tesla's market value is used to justify lines of credit that it probably shouldn't have. It's used to justify confidence in other projects and moonshot projects that it probably shouldn't do. And he's used to cultivate this sort of uh, cult of personality around him that lets him get away with things that he probably shouldn't. And similarly, Bitcoin's large prize and exuberance and cult around it allow it to justify the development of unregulated schemes that really, if they were in financial markets, everyone, we would hope... Uh, would would not ever be allowed to trade securities ever again. You neglected to mention that Musk is also going to disrupt and revolutionize the pedophile-controlled underwater cave rescue industry. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> Who could forget about that? Who could forget about that? I really do think, though, we, we live in sort of, I'm not the first to say this, but we live in an era where sort of the value of things is is pretty unmoored from from their prices, you know. and The so-called extent- fundamentals yeah, there's sort of a sense in which the economy more than ever is a collective hallucination. And yeah, the fundamentals aren't always there. And I think there's, you know, one thing that I'm working on writing about is I think there's just a lot of fraud, too. We live sort of in a golden age of fraud from Trump on down. And I'm not saying Tesla is a fraud, but it does it does engage in some clever accounting. And just but the fact that it's worth as much as it is, it reflects this kind of unreality and this uh, being disconnected from the fundamentals. And you see that in crypto all the time. And to also briefly go back to uh, the line, I love it when you quote me, but the line you quoted from me about <laughs> uh, Bitcoin not having a marketing department, uh, this this goes back to the influencer culture and, the, and the, the concept of number go up, which is that you just need to keep talking about this stuff and keep generating enthusiasm. And it's going to sort of lift everyone. And it's going to bring more VC money into the industry and all that kind of stuff. And so really, there's there's such a sustained media effort and social media effort behind hyping this stuff up, mostly crypto, but also Tesla and any sort of company that's seen as tied into this ecosystem, that that makes it harder than ever to sort through the bullshit. Jacob, you mentioned that cryptocurrency is basically unregulated in the United States. Why is that? Is it simply slipping through the cracks? 
well, there there are a couple of reasons I'd argue. So the last right now we're in a a pretty bearish market or a bullish market for crypto. Things are doing pretty well. Uh, I don't think Bitcoin's not at an all time high, but it's been there uh, a couple times in the last year. For one thing, the last crypto boom of of real substance and then crash was in 2017, 2018. It didn't get up to nearly Bitcoin or, or other currencies didn't get up to nearly the values they're at today. But there was a big boom of ICOs, initial coin offerings. A lot of them were, were frauds or scams. Some of them involved recognizable names be, paying fines like DJ Khaled or, and Floyd Mayweather for promoting crypto. That was a scam. And then it, it all it crashed quite a bit in 2018. And now and now we have the boom again. But the real reason for that probably is that the Trump administration just didn't care about white collar crime. And some of the people like um, Brian Brooks, I believe is his name, the guy who was the acting comptroller of the currency for a while under Trump, then went spe- immediately into the crypto industry. And there are other people like this. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the big VC company, also called A16Z, which invests more than any other venture capital company in or venture capital fund in crypto startups. They've hired a ton of people from career prosecutor jobs to people in the Trump administration. So I think a lot of it's just basic politics and, and revolving door kind of stuff that um, there was no real appetite. Now, things have changed. So Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, who formerly taught at MIT and other places, he he wants to crack down on, on crypto, especially on the stable coins. We haven't even gotten to Tether, which is my obsession. It's next on my to-do list. Yeah. The, you know, he wants to regulate these markets, crack down on fraud, kind of bring them more into the financial system. I, I think in a lot of ways what he wants or probably wants is really the future of crypto, which is it'll be fairly regulated. It'll be brought more into the mainstream. The big banks will get involved more directly and all that kind of stuff. It'll be less exciting to the early adopters and people like that. But it also may be uh, sand down the edges. But what we should say is, in terms of this lack of regulation, yeah, there's just very little going on. There's a lot of talk about the dangers of stablecoins, of Ponzi schemes. You have some fines being levied against Tether or this bank called Celsius, which is a crypto bank that is closely associated with Tether. But the other issue is that this is global. So, for example, the biggest exchange in the world, I have an article forthcoming about this, hopefully, but is Binance. Binance is the biggest exchange in the world by volume by far. Just as Tesla is worth more than all the other car companies combined, Binance is wor- it does more volume than all the other uh, exchanges combined. There's a U.S. version of Binance, which is ostensibly regulated, but it does much less volume than what's called global Binance or Binance Global. And so if you want to trade this stuff or you've fallen down the crypto rabbit hole, there's nothing stopping you from dialing through a VPN and doing this as much as or whenever you want on these global markets. I mean, and another thing is a company like Binance, they have no headquarters. They're time on establishing a real physical headquarters in Ireland or some other tax haven. But we're also seeing kind of a new type of corporate structure in which some of these crypto companies are managing a lot of assets or have a lot of money, whether paper money in terms of crypto or real fiat flowing through them, but they barely have anyone operating the company. And which just, of course, adds to all kinds of sketchiness. And when things go wrong, they barely have anyone there to even answer the phone to respond to concerned customers. So that's actually where uh, decentralization has maybe succeeded, is that you have these new decentralized corporate structures that are running these 24-7 unregulated markets that ba- where basically anything goes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, you know, in that sense, they did, you know. Little to no accountability, right? It's trustless, <laughs> essentially, right? And I am, and I think that it is, uh, it is 
concerning that that is being developed oh i mean and also as an iteration of like the next stage of the firm right you also see attempts to develop like DAOs, for example, and DAOs, I think, have had a sort of debate. I've seen some leftists try to talk about some interesting use cases for DAOs, given this or that development, and that for now they are here to stay in their terrifying development if they take on, largely because um, they kind of, I mean, already corporate governance is more or less like, you know, whoever has the largest stake in the company Whoever had, you know, however the company has been designed, one, companies are often designed to ensure that founders and their cadre have the most power, right? And then two, if that design is undermined, then it just comes down to whoever has the most money, right? Uh, having says in corporate governance, having says in, in design of the board, having says in corporate policies. And with, a, with the ascendance of DAOs, the goal is, you know, what, to further limit the liability of of the corporation or of this organization, the decentralized autonomous organization uh, or DAOs. And the idea is that you basically have a saying governance if you buy or have a certain amount of governance tokens and that changes to the DAO, decisions that the DAO make are then made by a group of, by by consensus or by vote and uh, you know majority winning out, or you can have a consensus system and, and try to strive for some sort of Idea where you have a threshold reached, right? But you know what you often see, for example, and what we're starting to see with DAOs is you have VCs buying out like large stakes in these governance tokens so that they can have a say in redesigning the organization in a way that allows them to further benefit or profit and then get out, right? You know, as they do with corporations and of themselves. And so the new form ends up being one that sells people on more democratization when there's actually no room for them to have a greater say in it, right? I mean, what use is all this rhetoric about democratization when you have no room to even grab hold of anything, right? And which the, it's democratization in the sense that new money and new capital can come in. That's really what it's what is the what feels like the grand promise here people are misconstruing it as themselves because they're believing that you know they are in one way or another this close or that close to striking it rich if they stay with this or that project right but the reality is no it's, it's it's the people who already have money it's the whales right and the people who are hunting the whales i'm master taylor and you're listening to the dig with daniel denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. Verso's end-of-year sale is going on now with 40% off all books and merch until January 4th. One title you might like is the updated edition of Alex Vitale's The End of Policing. The massive uprising that followed the police killing of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, by some estimates the largest protests in U.S. history, thrust the argument to defund the police to the forefront of international politics. That case had been put persuasively a few years earlier by Alex Vitale, now a leading figure in the urgent public discussion over policing and racial justice. The central problem, Vitaly demonstrates, is the dramatic expansion of the role of police over the last 40 years. Drawing on first-hand research from across the globe, he shows how the implementation of alternatives to policing has led to reductions in crime, spending, and injustice. 
This updated edition includes a new introduction that takes stock of the renewed movement to challenge police impunity and shows how we move forward, evaluating protest, policy, and the political situation. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Updated and out now from Verso Books. Jacob, you mentioned your obsession with stable coins, which is a a type of cryptocurrency, and correct me if my definition is wrong, pegged one-to-one to the U.S. dollar. What does it mean for a crypto coin to be pegged to a national currency, in this case, a national currency that is also the global reserve currency? And what sort of, this is sort of a leading question, what sort of financial risk does that potentially pose, given that Tether, which you mentioned earlier, the leading stable coin, does not possess a Fort Knox worth of U.S. dollars with which to redeem every possible claim on stable coins. This is becoming a really big market. Over the last year, the total value of stable stable coins has increased from 20-odd billion to around 50 billion today. That's a lot of money. What what happens if faith in stable coins plummets and people call in their dollar claims all at once? It's a great question. I actually think the, the overall value of extant stable coins might even be higher because I, I think... Te- Tether is over 70 billion in, in stable coins down there, the largest one. But so Tether is ostensibly one Tether is worth $1. And it's kind of like uh, we joked about this on Twitter. It's sort of like Disney bucks or something. It's like house money. Uh, you go onto the exchange, you use dollars to buy Tethers. And then uh, you don't have to do this, but this, is, this makes it easier to get in and out of crypto assets and sometimes to move money between exchanges and things like that. Uh, Tether service is the coin of the realm. There are other ones like um, USDC. Some people think that Paxos is sort of the most legitimate stable coin because it's, it's fairly regulated and cooperates with regulators. But Tether is really the main market mover. And it's 70, about 70% of Bitcoin daily transactions are done in Tether, meaning the prices of Bitcoin are listed in terms of USDT, which are worth a dollar each. The problem with Tether, among many other, com- among many other similar companies, is that so basically what you have is this offshore company that has its own money printer that when it says it has demand for tethers that people want to give it, you know, say I want to buy $100 million worth of tethers. I'm some big trading firm and I want to do a lot of trading on Binance. So I'll go to Tether and buy $100 million worth of tethers. The idea is I give them $100 million of fiat dollars and they give me 100 million tethers. And then I go use that. It's put on a certain blockchain. I go use it to uh, do all kinds of crazy financial arbitrage and transactions. The big issue with Tether, besides the shadiness of its leadership, which is pretty well documented, is that for a long time, Tether claimed, okay, for every, that, that's how it works. For every, dollar, for every Tether we give out, we have $1 in the bank. Uh, several years ago, Tether basically said, actually, we're changing that. Well, they didn't even really announce the change. They just changed their terms of service on their website. And they claimed that tethers were fully backed by assets in general, not necessarily one-to-one by a dollar. So that includes like corporate debt now, commercial paper. Yeah, mm-hmm. now they have a lot of commercial debt, other other forms of assets. Um, I think they're counting crypto among those backing assets, which you could see the problem. If Tether is giving, if the company Tether is giving out their own private currency and people are using that to buy Bitcoin, but maybe people are also using a Bitcoin to pay for tethers, you know, it becomes it becomes sort of circular and Ponzi-like. A good example is this company Celsius. Celsius is a bank, a crypto bank. If you give them your stable coins or other crypto, they will give you very high rates of interest, interest rates that I think are impossible, but that's another question. 
But Celsius has investment from Tether. They're one of their investors. But the other thing that Celsius does is they receive loans of Tether from Tether and then give them back Bitcoin. So this is how this sort of circular economy between some of these companies work is you have people creating crypto out of thin air and loaning crypto to some to sometimes the companies they have other relationships with. And then there's a, there's a question of whether these debts really get resolved. We know that Tether does not have nearly the one-to-one backing of fiat that it once claimed it did. The question is, how much do they really have? They have all kinds of agreements with the New York Attorney General where they're supposed to disclose this stuff. For years, they've been talking about doing an audit, which from my understanding is a pretty basic task. You hire an auditing firm, an accounting firm, and they take a few months and they do it. But for years, Tether's been saying, oh, the audit's just around the corner when they won't even say who's doing the audit. So look, a lot of people like me think that Tether is basically a Ponzi scheme at the heart of the crypto economy and that Tether is going to go down in some form. It is being investigated, according to Bloomberg, by the DOJ for, for bank fraud, for criminal bank fraud. And there's lots of other things that we do know for sure about Tether. That According to a CFTC investigation, they had more than 29 banking relationships with no paper trail. Like, it's insane. Like they worked with this company called they worked at this bank called Crypto Capital Corps, which was what's called a Panamanian shadow bank, basically an unregistered bank. They did business with lots of crypto companies. They also did businesses with Colombian cartels, which is why Crypto Capital Corps got shut down. So when C- Crypto Capital Corps had eight hundred fifty million dollars from Tether and its sister exchange Bitfinex, that money basically disappeared in, in Crypto Capital's legal troubles. There was no written contract for that $850 million. And that's, that's one thing that we just, we know for sure based on the investigation into Crypto Capital Core, into Tether and all this kind of stuff. But just think about that on a larger scale, like that 29 times over. Why is this company that's at the heart of the crypto world, that's also very important in, in the whole Bitcoin stuff in El Salvador? Why are they so sketchy? Why do they not have ba- codified banking relationships? All this kind of stuff. Why can't they tell us how much actual money they have in the bank? And it's all very concerning. Um, and there are two ways really to approach this. There are the professional traders who say, like, look, we know the risk. We just we do it anyway. Or there, I think the, there's the more sensible approach, which is to say this is a ticking time bomb at the, at the heart of crypto. Whether you approve of crypto or not or whether you're a supporter or not, you probably want to see this dealt with and cleaned up. So that's that's my brief against Tether. There's a lot more you could say. But, you know, th- this is the irony of crypto, which is that it's a lot of things. It's usually the opposite of what it said it is. The stable coin known as Tether is ostensibly pegged to the dollar and usually hovers around a dollar. But the company itself is deeply unstable and potentially could cause a bank run, which would have all kinds of run on effects and potential problems throughout the industry. You could see major asset crashes. Edward? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that it's, it's a systemic risk. Uh, the uh, currency controller for the U.S. Uh, in like September was saying that you know uh, stable coins are could be a systemic risk, right? Partly because their reserves, uh, their dollar reserves, are not one to one, so uh, they are printing money. <laughs> They're essentially printing money, and also, if at any point a audit or some actual review of it shakes in confidence, there will be a run, and that will undermine. Like people use Tether as a waypoint in a lot of transactions. It is pegged to the it in it, it is indirectly responsible or directly responsible in some instances for huge price booms of crypto when the price has declined over the past few years. Like it has been used multiple times in in key moments to keep crypto afloat. And if you're telling me that third largest coin 
uh, the, the coin that is used often by people as an intermediary for trading for other coins is actually uh, just a massive bubble accounting black hole, a Ponzi scheme. Uh, what does that say about every single other coin, right? Even if the other ones, even if Bitcoin and Ethereum are not, if the stable coin, if the one thing that's supposed to be like the most ostensibly like trustworthy one because it's pegged to a real world asset is, then I think that would destroy confidence completely, right? And it is also that Tether's success has encouraged other attempts to get into crypto through stablecoin as well, right? You know, like Facebook, what was it, three years ago attempted they were going to try to overthrow the global monetary system by creating their own stablecoin. And that they, that they thought that uh, they, what was it, uh, Libra, and that they had the backing of dozens of companies or financial vendors, Facebook. Uh, and then the second it was reported, all these companies started pulling Yeah, out. because they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Come to a congressional hearing right now. What is this? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then they had a hearing and everyone was like, please do not do this. We will not let you do this. This is insane. What are you talking about? You want to create a currency where that is pegged to the dollar. It has a basket of other current. Like, this is nonsense. And so they closed it down and then they downsized and they tried to introduce another staple coin, DM. And that also got killed. But I mean, like these attempts to roll out stable coins are also bids by other companies to try to put their foot into the water safely. Right. And again, as you know, Jacob pointed out, Tether itself is scandalous. It's hard to imagine that if Tether is scandalous and Tether is the most used one, that other ones are going to be allowed to happen if, you know, that it ends up being revealed as a fraud, which it likely is. Um, it is hard to uh, also Stable coins are offered also as a safer alternative because they're pegged to a real world asset. But if the largest one is just a fraudulent scheme, then why should you bother with any of them? And also, why should you bother with like the underlying risky asset, which is cryptocurrency in and of itself? If cryptocurrency is supposed to replace government fiat currency with decentralized private currency, what is up with having a coin pegged to the global reserve currency at the center of the crypto economy? <laughs> well, I, I think that's a good question. That That's sort of one of the contradictions of a lot of crypto, which is that people are always trying to get back to fiat. I mean, of course, if if you have hyper-Bitcoinization or whatever they want to call it or a great reversal, like, and Bitcoin becomes the global reserve currency and we're all spending things in Bitcoin, I assume that there'll be the infrastructure developed. But like, you know, at the end of the day, most people are buying their houses in fiat and like the the, the crypto moguls are, are trying to cash out. But that is one of the ironies is that you re- you still need the, the formal financial system in a lot of ways. I, I think also with Tether, it, it, it's worth noting that it's it's what Ed said about if this idea that the, the sort of core utility coin is somehow corrupt, what does that say about everything else and the level of instability that could be lurking within the system? Oh, one other thing that's worth mentioning too is that Tether has been used a lot in capital to facilitate capital flight in China. It's used in informal economies in places like Russia. But again, we're really dealing with fancy money whose backing we don't know the amount of. Oh, Ed also mentioned something about how it's been shown to be linked to to sort of price movements in in crypto. There's a famous paper called uh, "Is Bitcoin Untethered," written uh, by t- two scholars, and it came out a few years ago. It basically showed that during a previous Bitcoin boom, it coincided a lot with the printing of Tether and and big movements of Tether. Now, a lot of crypto people have said, well, that's just FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt, you know, or it's, it hasn't been proven. But the guy who, the co-writer of that paper, a guy named John Griffin, has been advising that has had some pretty, you can look up the contracts. He has federal contracts to advise the SEC 
the DOJ and other agencies on crypto, especially on investigations and as an expert witness. So this is actually my roundabout way of answering your earlier question of why nothing has happened under the current administration, which is that one, I think these things take a while. But, you know, people like John Griffin, who wrote that paper, who I consider a real expert on sort of this forensic examination of, of blockchain accounting, he's talking to the government and to the DOJ, and he's not saying that Tether are good guys, you know? Uh, he's saying, here's how I, he's likely saying, here's how I found market manipulation. So I think that's important. The other thing I think is, is important is something that's been told to me, which is that if this is all a bubble sort of underwritten by one or many Ponzi schemes, how do you stop that? Right now, there's a lot of consumer enthusiasm and exuberance. We're at the we're close to the top of the market. And as someone mentioned to me, governments don't always stop scams or bubbles or schemes at the top of the market. They sometimes wait for them to collapse under their own contradictions, which I think is what happened with Madoff. You know, what happens is if the government just comes in and shuts down a bunch of companies and prevents others from doing business. I mean, some of this stuff has happened to a small extent. Uh, Tether can't do business in the state of New York. Celsius was just shut down in New Jersey, I believe. But if they come down and straight up indict the Tether guys, send them to jail, shut down a few other companies, people are going to be mad. You know, when people lose all their money on Coinbase or FTX, people are going to be mad and are going to blame the government. So there's maybe a political dance there, which is how do you handle this? And maybe how do you handle it in a coordinated all of government kind of way so that you can actually you know, address the fraud and the deception and the illegality and everything else in the market without becoming the bad guy. The One other thing I'd say about that also is that these can be very complex investigations. A good antecedent for Tether potentially, depending on what happens, is something called Liberty Reserve, which was a stable coin. I think it was pegged to the dollar. But basically, they were, they were just issuing their own coin and issuing it to all kinds of illegal actors uh, based out of Costa Rica. And they were taken down something like six years ago. And there, there are things that distinguish Liberty Reserve, but basically the most important thing is that they were just issuing their own currency and that it took an investigation between, I think, 18 or 19 different countries. And again, the company was based in Costa Rica. So these are very complex investigations. A company like Tether is scattered all over the world. Binance is scattered all over the world. So if you want this done right and done sort of authoritatively, it may end up being, you know, the U.S. working with the Chinese, working with the Indians, working with the U.K. and France and everyone else, like... It's not going to be simple to, to, to poke this bubble or to wrap up some of the stuff. Speaking of criminal actors and not to be a, a law and order moralist, but in those cases where crypto is being used to purchase goods rather than just as a speculative investment asset, how much of that crypto is being used to buy drugs, guns, child pornography? I don't know a percentage. There may be estimates out there. You know, we we barely uh, touched on it, but I still think one of the best uses for crypto is for illegal activity. Again, I don't want to be a moralist. I mean, I think drugs should be decriminalized and freely available, but Me too. You, you shouldn't have to use crypto. But the other two items know, on my list, I'm not a big fan of, but drugs. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of money laundering and tax evasion. Money laundering is pretty easy through crypto. You can find apps and services that basically wash your crypto through a bunch of different other services and wallets and other currencies and then return it to you in a new wallet. And it's pretty hard to track. But again, in the spirit of crypto is everything it says it's not, the government has gotten very good at tracking crypto. 
And I think that's one thing that people don't realize is that people like the, the scholar I mentioned earlier, John Griffin, or, or these companies like Chain Analysis, they're doing contracts for the FBI and other government agencies where they're tracking the flows of crypto. So it's not nearly as private as you think it is. Right. Like it, um, it, it hides your identity, but what you do is not anonymous. And so like it is. Yeah, pretty- the money and where it goes is, is still being tracked. And so I think, yeah, I think you can't ignore that. Like there's a we have a lot of problems with the existing financial system, but there are reasons why. There are controls on huge capital flows and things like that. And maybe those need to be reformed. But the, but suddenly anyone being able to send anyone a huge amount of money, of course, opens up all kinds of possibilities. And especially with something like ransomware specifically. Uh, this is, a, I think, a good point that some crypto critics make, which is that ransomware was a crime before. But in order to get paid, it was very difficult. You know, you can't necessarily hack a company and then go to the, a park, uh, Lowe's parking lot in the middle of the night and get a bag of cash. I mean, that's risky. But now crypto is the payment system for ransomware. That, and that's a crime that's exploded in popularity and that wouldn't really exist to this extent without crypto. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of crypto, though personally, I think it's a reason to crack down on, on it in some ways. But there are totally new avenues of crime and manipulation and again, I'm going to go back to market manipulation. I think there's tons of that that's really overlooked. And that these are potentially fundamental features of crypto and of crypto markets. Uh, I saw a recent study that was talking about how 10% of uh, the traders of NFTs are handling like, what, 90% of the volume. And as a result, most of it, uh, you know, that pretty much lends itself to the thesis that a lot of the trading is just washing, which is like increasing, just increasing and inflating the value of the asset so that you can then sell it off to somebody else. Right. And we know that this is an established thing already in the terms of having exchanges, NFT exchanges, isn't an NFTs being NFT short for or non-fungible token, which is basically like uh, to simplify it at risk of getting yelled at a certificate of uh, ownership for some digital asset. Right. And here uh, often a really ugly JPEG. Right. Often uh, some shit that you would not ever want to even pay a penny for, but uh, that people are paying tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons being that a lot of times. Just like how some owners of these NFT exchanges are also exchanging the NFTs to inflate the value and then selling them and passing them off to people. It seems like a lot of the trades of NFTs um, are also structured in a way where the owners of them are just inflating the value and then dropping it onto someone else. And that leaves you with wondering, like, oh, is that a novel phenomenon that is happening only in NFTs and NFT exchanges? Or is that because this is a pattern of behavior that has been established in crypto space and in the crypto industry and in of itself? And it's hard to imagine that it's not the fact that that's just how it's been for a while and it's getting applied here elsewhere because that's how it is and other sectors of the financial uh, sector or financial economy that are not penetrated by crypto. And But is it fair to describe NFTs as essentially just a cryptocurrency token, a unique blockchain token attached to often breathtakingly ugly artwork? And, and why also is the artwork so horrible? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because, uh, well, yeah, to back up, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it would be simple to say that it's basically you have a digital record of it on the blockchain. And if someone were to look, they would see that you own it. And it's usually of a digital asset or sometimes it could be physical assets. They've also been getting into like, you know, turning physical assets like massive, t- massive uh, tungsten cubes into NFTs is one example. <laughs> but, you know, um, 
why are people interested in it? That's a good question. So a lot of the people that I've talked to and some of the communities I've been in just understand that it's speculative. And so they're buying them in anticipation of a rising value for them so that they can sell them off. Some people, right, they're treating them like, you know, trading cards, right? Or Yu-Gi-Oh cards, right? Where it's like maybe the card in of itself is not valuable. Maybe you play with it in some game if you can, but they likely don't exist. But you're holding it also because if you're a collector, you're going to sell it, right? Or maybe it just pleases you because you have money to spend. Some people that I've encountered have millions of dollars or billions that they have to spend and then they they throw it down the well on this shit and part of that is as they understand it a subsidy to encourage more people to get into it right uh because that's also the thing if you have enough money it doesn't really matter if you spend a few million dollars on ugly jpegs what matters is that you do and that other people are interested in doing so, and that the value of, and that that value of the ugly JPEG continues to rise. Yeah, exactly. You know, it by virtue of spending on it, it goes up because the idea is that well, if it wasn't valuable and if it wasn't indicative of some future use or utility, then why is there so much money in the space? I think the point that Ed made about wash trading and, and artificial demand is important. So wash trading, basically, in one form or another. The illusion of trading. You either sell it back and forth to yourself or you file orders and then, uh, and then cancel them. I think there are different ways to do it. In, in real markets, uh, you know, commodities exchanges and, and stock exchanges, that kind of stuff is heavily cracked down upon. But in crypto, it's believed to be a, a, by far a majority of all trades are wash trades, something like 80 or 90%. And what that does is it, it, it gives the illusion of volume. Uh, which everyone wants because it, it makes activity seem higher. And then with NFTs specifically, you know, it's really easy. I could s- take an NFT and sell it back and forth to myself for ever escalating prices. And then, I mean, this is the scheme I've heard mentioned a number of times, which I think is pretty basic, but clever. You, you sell it back and forth between different accounts you control for escalating prices. And then you, so, you know, maybe get it up to 100 ETH- Ethereum. And then you list it for sale at a discount to try to unload it for, you know, 70 Ethereum or something like that. And someone thinks it's a good deal because they've been tracking its price history. So I think there's just a lot of stuff like that in which the the perceived demand actually for crypto in general may be lower than we're led to believe. There's a tremendous amount of money flowing into it. There's a tremendous amount of advertising. I mean, just the crypto.com ad campaign is, has $100 million behind it, the one with Matt Damon. But that's also because this industry needs fresh money. It needs victims coming in the door, frankly, with money in their pockets. The whales uh, depend on that. And the, the people who control and move the markets depend on more people coming through the door. And there are a couple ways you do that via advertising, via FOMO, and also via um, sort of these oddities like NFTs, which capture the public imagination a little bit. Returning to the regulatory question In September, China banned all cryptocurrency mining and transactions. And on this count, I am indeed a dedicated tanky. The Indian parliament I just read is considering a bill to ban all private cryptocurrency. What motivates these sorts of crackdowns and what sort of impact might they have on the global cryptocurrency market? Because it does seem like it could be a big problem being banned in the second largest economy, China, and in India, which I think is like the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world. You know, I'm not sure what motivates India is China uh, is like, you know, 
there are a few things going on, you know, and it also depends on the perspective and the way of understanding. I've talked to people like, you know, there's a group of people who will understand most of China's technological policy moves as censorious, as uh, looking to centralize state control and to an extent they are. But also, I think it is a slight misunderstanding in that, like, for example, it depends on how you see like the Great Firewall, right? If you see the Great Firewall as like a great way to censor and solely to censor the Internet. There's a certain type of understanding of what they'll do in crypto that you'll have. But also, if you see the Great Wall, the firewall is like an industrial policy thing that they did to keep out all like, you know, Silicon Valley firms and then create their own competitors and then take information and patents and technology from them and then start to compete with them on a global scale. So protect like the, the protect the country, then steal from them and then, you know, compete with them. Then, you know, that's that I think con- confers an alternative view where like, Probably short term, they want to get that get that shit out of there as part of the overhaul that they're doing of the digital economy or of some firms in the digital economy, whether it's cracked down on antitrust, whether it's cracked down on social media addiction, whether it's cracked down on the ability of private capital to just to flourish and be as profligate as it was uh, in some instances. Um, but also, I think part of it is like a recognition of or preemptive maybe preemptive recognition of like what's going on here, right? That letting Bitcoin technology, that letting crypto technology flourish is going to lead to new forms of financialization that they don't really want. They're already struggling with containing uh, the the forms of financialization that are brought on by these digital platforms. Now they have to throw in crypto, you know, that that likely be a mess. And also the energy constraints, as, you know, Jacob talked about. We haven't gotten to talk about them much, but they are, like, a pretty large concern in some of these countries. Kazakhstan, India, China, you know, these are countries that have significant energy demands already, and they do not need a speculative enterprise that also goes against, like, whatever state planning or central planning initiatives or uh, industrial policy initiatives that they have uh, to fuck up the ability to provide energy when it is already, like, a monumental task to provide it for a billion-plus people. So I think those are some of the some of the things like I view it as like a both as like a get the fuck out of here move. And also like maybe we are trying to figure out what we could do instead of having private individuals do it. Jacob, I think it's definitely in some ways a challenge to or seen as a challenge to state sovereignty. I mean, even someone like Trump, who is an idiot, of course, um, but he he said he doesn't like Bitcoin because it, it competes with the dollar. And I actually think that says something about how cer- certain decision makers think. If you're an official in almost any government, you want uh, some uh, influence over over uh, the monetary supply and how money is spent and financial planning and things like that. Whether it's a it's an authoritarian uh, dictatorial government like China or our messy <laughs> oligarchic democracy. Which, which um, yeah, choose your poison. Uh, but the the power issue is also very real. I mean, that that was an issue in China, I think. And you, you can point to larger issues, too, like the semiconductor shortage, which affects hundreds of industries now, has something to do with the hunger for the video cards and other equipment that can mine crypto. Uh, and then you have, as Ed mentioned, you have people got kicked out of China. Miners got kicked out of China. They went to places like Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan, some stuff in Iran. And all those places have had electricity issues. So this it is for I think some governments uh, a major issue of how do you want to spend your resources? Uh, how do you want to, what kind of laws do you want to have governing this stuff? Because 
if you if you just leave it to its own devices, it's going to consume your electrical grid, if, if nothing else. Oh, uh, no, I, I wanted to also jump on your semiconductor point, because China is also engaged in like a really, I think semiconductors, their importance is largely just thought of in terms of how essential they are to electronics, but they're also like a, are developing and they will develop into like a geopolitical front because of the fact that they unlock the ability to design and foreclose avenues of develop of technological development, right? Just like there are uh, struggles between various U.S. and China over the standardization of, of how te- uh, certain technologies will communicate with one another and what type of inputs they'll be able to have. Like there's a conflict over like who's going to have a supply chain that's independent from the other actor or that can resist attempts by the other actor to sanction it, to shock it, to disrupt it, to undermine it. And that's that's a pretty big thing. And you can't really handle that if you have a like, you know, millions of, of of people with these fucking uh uh warehouses or these hu- like these huge uh operations that just do nothing except to mine and burn out chip after chip after chip after chip right or uh, or processing unit after processing unit you cannot really deal with that as a factor if you're also trying to deal with and plan for what is going to be a pretty hard fought geopolitical uh, soft. I don't know if conflict is the right word, but a geopolitical like you know tango, right? How do you cre- like, which is like you know how to create like an infrastructure and a supply system uh, that is both global but also insulated from the U.S. and other actors that might try to disrupt it, right? You can't do that with uh, with these fuckers mining in your country. You really can't. <laughs> and I also think the mining issue just really reflects, you know, Bitcoin and crypto in general. I mean, not all cryptos mine in the same way. They're less energy intensive versions, but a lot of them work on a similar uh, method called proof of work, which secures Bitcoin and basically is responsible for the ever escalating energy usage as the network expands. And Bitcoin requires as much energy as Sweden. Yeah, we're getting up there into sort of the smaller nice. advanced Western countries like, or economically country. developed Western countries. Like, Number I think they, pa- Number I think they pass the <laughs> Netherlands. And, yeah. They pass Argentina and the Netherlands. Now it's, you know, good old social democratic Sweden. Um, so these are major questions, not just of how you want to control the monetary supply, but industrial policy, how you want resources apportioned and stuff like that. And there are all kinds of, I think, disingenuous uh, corner arguments about how, you know, the energy expenditure of Bitcoin is actually a good thing or how it shows value of the network. And then there's a lot of bullshit, I think, about how Bitcoin incentivizes green energy or it uses what's called stranded energy that from... Uh, renewable sources that wouldn't normally be put back into the grid or used. This is part of what Naib Bukele, the Salvadoran crypto crypto bro president, is trying to do and say it's going to be yeah. like volcanically powered. And it's bullshit. El Salvador, I don't have the exact numbers offhand, but they import a lot of their energy and they burn oil and stuff like that for energy. They they are not overflowing with green energy from volcanoes or anywhere else. I mean, the geothermic energy and volcano energy or whatever is certainly part of their mix, I think. But acting like you can just take Bitcoin and stick it on a on a volcano or some some or some old old uh, power plant, and it's green is ridiculous. Not to mention the fact that you're burning through all, literally burning through equipment, as uh, as Ed mentioned. I mean, I'm glad to go down the El Salvador line, but one thing I think is also worth mentioning is that the president of El Salvador, Naib Bukele, is. Uh, I mean, he is basically one of these crypto bros, just. Uh, a millennial crypto bro who was given the presidency of El Salvador. I mean, the way the reason why I think El Salvador is is doing all this in part is because there's not much difference between him and one of these guys like 
if you know these people like Anthony Papliano or the or the the Winklevoss or Michael Saylor or whatever, like I mean, I'm yeah, Brock Pierce. I'm sure he sees some uh, self interest too. I think they all do. They all want to get rich, but um, it's like if you took one of these Twitter crypto influencers and just made him the president, the authoritarian president of a Central American country. It's very bizarre, but that's in a way why why it's kind of I wouldn't say working, but developing there. And when he did his recent sort of song and dance, he brought in all these uh, American crypto influencers um, and had them be there and tweet about it and all this stuff. The, with El Salvador, it's very revealing that the techno-utopian dream of escaping the confines of the nation state, seasteading, whatever, is really just setting up shop under the protection of a neo-colonial state on the periphery of the world system that will not tax you. It's just it's just a colonial enterprise. I mean, I, I mean, I think like like we were talking about earlier. You know, the the settler colonial mindset that encourages like homesteading as and 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 staking a claim to the land, but in reality, masking the violence that's going on. The fact that you have to steal someone else's lunch to get anything in crypto space because they're not actually generating value. They're exchange. They're just transferring it or draining it to one place or another, right? And in these places, as we talked about, Puerto Rico, Salvador, they're coming in. They're saying, oh, no, we're using this law where we're going to buy some land here. We're going to build a business here. We're going to do transactions here. And those will generate revenues that can be taxed, but our crypto gains will not be. But in, but you talk to them and you know, I've talked to a few of them. They really are just using these as like incubators to generate more money and more crypto so that then they can do what they really want, which is like, you know, start a business in some other country, become a landlord in some other country, you know, uh, maybe return to the United States with enough money to hire lawyers to actually not pay taxes. Like it's it's like the it's like the training stage in some hero's journey for them. Right. It's not actually a desire and a pull to go in and say, I'm going to actually do some good with crypto. It's like, no, I'm actually going to figure out, I'm going to game this. So I can make as much money as possible and minimize any sort of draining of my capital while maximizing the draining of other people's. According to a collection of information on the Axios website on the Indian legislation banning private cryptocurrency, quote, the bill's stated aim is to lay the groundwork for a cryptocurrency issued directly by the central bank. India doesn't oppose crypto in general. It just wants to control all crypto activity within its borders and centralize that activity on its own digital currency. Are, are state-issued crypto coins a possibility? And what, if so, what would a state want to accomplish by issuing its own coins? That's a good question. I don't know, you know, because if I were a state, I would simply not make a cryptocurrency or use my currency and maybe like do a tax on the blockchain. I don't know, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to do a, my own coin. And so I would be confused by countries that did it unless they were doing so as part of either, as we talked about this, you know, sort of colonial enterprise, this sort of attempt to attract capital to come there, but a misunderstanding of what's actually going to happen once the capital gets there. Or because, like, the, at the helm of the decision are a bunch of crypto bros. I mean, like, in El Salvador, right, the law got passed at, like, midnight in the cover of darkness when it was not – I don't even think they had a full quorum for it, right? So is that really El Salvador deciding that we are going to – fully embrace this currency or and fully embrace uh, Bitcoin as tender? Or is that like a bunch of people who are in the right place at the right time who happen to believe in this shit seizing an opportunity? And I feel like that's more what we would see than states really going for it. What do you think, Jacob? 
yeah, states mostly would want to contain crypto uh, because they already have their own monetary supplies. I mean, some of them are in disarray, but you know that they want to maintain that kind of sovereignty. What you do see are central backed digital currencies, CBDCs, which are basically like digital versions of the same uh, national currency. China is the most farthest along, I think, in this. Uh, a lot of countries are testing this out or running pilot programs. I don't. So frankly, it's a digital. It's a digital currency, but not a cryptocurrency. Right, and it 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 is more controlled by the state. You access it usually through like a a smartphone wallet. So there are positives and negatives here. I mean, certainly in a country like China, like what what the Bitcoin people will say, like, well, this is just more financial surveillance, and they they fear financial surveillance a lot, and they think that CBDCs, as they're called, don't provide the kind of privacy that they want. They do provide some benefits, though. Like for example, if you're if you want to give out a stimulus check or some kind of social benefit to a lot of people, you could do it potentially more easily through these CBDCs and through these digital accounts if every citizen has one. I mean, then, of course, you have sort of technological divides that there are concerns about. The other thing is, and this is where the potentially authoritarian side of monetary policy comes in and is totally open, uh, subject to potential critique, but if a, if a country wants to encourage its citizens to spend quickly it can do stuff like issue each citizen $30 worth of the CBDC and then have that the value decline over time, kind of a deflation almost, uh, so, so that if you don't spend your CBDC within a month, it's worth half as much or something like that. Again, there are arguments to be made against that for sure, I, I would say. But you can see why nation states might be interested in having sort of a more granular control over the money supply and, and how benefits and money are distributed and spent. You all have alluded to this a few times, but major financial institutions are getting a piece of the action. In October, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy EF, ETF, ETF being an exchange-traded fund, launched. And that was the first time that people, if I understand it right, were able to bet on the value of cryptocurrency on the New York Stock Exchange without actually buying cryptocurrency coins. And then Citigroup, I think, recently appointed an executive to lead a new crypto team, and a ton of other banks are getting involved as well, even while many financial executives continue to express a lot of skepticism towards cryptocurrency. Just reading a little about this, I'm having trouble getting a clear read on where big finance is at on cryptocurrency. Where does Wall Street and traditional finance stand on crypto right now, and where where might it all be heading? I, I think they're kind of of two minds, or maybe it depends which area of the industry you're talking about. I think everyone has at least a you know a toe in the water. Uh, they all have kind of all the big banks have study groups or or crypto divisions that are looking at this stuff and writing papers and things like that. Some of them are much more directly exposed. Uh, Goldman, I believe, has a trading relationship with. I'm sorry, I think it might be Alameda, but one of the there are these big, relatively unknown trading desks that handle a lot of crypto trading activity on the exchanges. And some of the banks like Goldman will, will basically trade through them or uh, have deals with them. I think there is very little sort of direct exposure to crypto assets uh, on Wall Street, but I think they all feel like they have to at least, you know, have their hat in the ring. Though, you know, I wonder, I do wonder if you, if you, I don't talk to a lot of bankers, I'd like to talk to more, but if you, if you pulled some aside, you know, how seriously they would, they would take this stuff because, you know, there's profit potential, but I think the profit potential is also just like in a lot of other forms of high frequency trading, which is just trading on volatility. So what you have are some of the best known trading firms in uh, in crypto. There's one called Alameda, 
which is part of FTX, which is owned by a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, who's like a 29-year-old billionaire. There's one called Jump Trading, which is originally a Wall Street, high street trading firm. And um, there are a couple others. Cumberland is a big one based out of Chicago. And these are known in finance, and some of them have roots in traditional finance and private equity or hedge funds or whatever. But now they're, they're doing high-frequency trading, algorithmic trading with very sophisticated software on Binance and the other exchanges. One thing that they're doing, which uh, Ed kind of alluded to early, early in our chat, is they're, they're arbitraging between exchanges, you know? So if uh, Bitcoin is a dollar cheaper on one exchange than it is on another, they buy on one, they sell on the other. And also, of course, much more sophisticated kind of movements going on. So that's where I think you see the some of the more exposure, interesting things going on is when you have these high-frequency trading firms, some of them with Wall Street connections, some of them directly tied to Wall Street firms who are doing the actual trading and probably making a lot of money. But again, it is very opaque. I think banks will want a piece of the pie if they can. They will want their finger in sort of the info or, or income stream. But there's a question of how to do that uh, safely and within the law, which is not you know, banks are, for all their faults, are pretty highly regulated or at least have a lot of rules governing them. And right now, that's not really necessarily compatible with taking on crypto exposure directly. Right, exactly. Especially with like decentralized finance schemes where they're trying to cut out banks entirely and instead offer new financial services and goods like uh, uncollateralized loans with uh, or loans that are backed with crypto. Peer-to-peer loans, um, ridiculous interest rates or APY uh, by, you know, as we talked about earlier, by like taking, by buying some token and then promising to lock it up in uh, some uh, platform for six months or a month or a year, getting interest rate based on how long you lock it up and then allowing them capital to like, you know, give other people their tokens or to, you know, have more capital to then expand further, right? Like there are all these esoteric schemes that range from simplistic to complex that are quite clearly the result, I think, of like financiers getting involved. Right. It is hard to imagine that this is where people's heads were at when they said, let's create currency because currency does not need to have really extravagant speculative schemes. But but speculators need like these are incredibly complex schemes to make money off of, you know, commodities, securities and currencies. But the presence of speculative enterprises shouldn't make people go. This is definitely a currency. In fact, that's just because you let financiers through the door you know, into the hen house. What about meme stocks like Wall Street's bets, like the the Wall Street's bets subreddit fueled GameStop buying spree that captivated everyone's attention earlier this year? On On a technological level, it seems like it has nothing to do with cryptocurrency at all. But on a cultural, ideological, social, more general level, it seems like it's shaped. Is it fair to say that's shaped by the same MLM style ideology of taking collective online action to fuel the inflation of speculative assets and that it appeals and that the community around meme stocks is essentially the same online community surrounding cryptocurrency. I think that's part of it. You know, I think, you know, Jacob wrote uh, earlier um, this year around the turn of the year about how also part of it is like there's just so much fucking idle capital. You know, a lot of people are just like really trying to burn cash. And that led to the rise of some of these truly spectacular 
moments like NFTs, right? Where it's like there's really no reason. It's a tra- it's this trading card and a Furby and a digital receipt and a crypto thing all combined into one ugly a chimera. And similarly, uh, you know, people are also looking for outsized returns, right? I think that's a lot of the logic behind the gig economy, right? The outsized return, even if you have to burn a billion dollars to get there, is going to be there if you can get the monopoly. And similarly, I think maybe there's a calculation made that even if you have to burn X amount of money or Y amount of money, there is a return there if, which is often a big if, you can create a cult around it, get a community, get influencers, get marketing, get, you know, fresh blood and new money and new offerings, right? They're like more or less, if you can get those things, you can get the return, but to, but most people can't get it because to get it requires a lot of capital. And so what you end up seeing is just like a lot of people willingly or unknowingly getting involved in like the dream of a whale, you know, whether it's the pump and dump schemes on Telegram that Jacob talked about, you know, on Discord or on Twitter, right, or on WhatsApp. Uh, where they are leading and then get, and, you know getting people to come in so that they can increase their position a little bit more, maybe get a little bit more of a return and then dump. You know, it can be those, or it can also just be the fact that when, no matter what coin you look at, almost all of them are uh, ones where the vast majority of it is held by a small number of accounts. And again, these are all people who usually more or less know each other, or if they don't already know each other beforehand, are going to try to know each other, Right. And are also cultivated from the same crowd or the same group or, you know, involved in the same so- types of exchanges or the same sort of milieus and social circles, right? It's a very insular group. It's a very insular community that is taking advantage of everyone while spending a lot of money and effort building this sandcastle and this utopian rhetoric about how this is the future. I think there's certainly plenty of overlap between the, these cultures and communities and sort of the the mindset and ideology even at work. This relates to what we said earlier about kind of a lot of the market being divorced from fundamentals. I don't think, as far as I know, that there's much about GameStop or AMC or some of these other high-profile meme stocks that really make them worth pumping up or worth saving. But obviously, they, they caught people's imaginations for various reasons. And I, I think that same kind of illogic or just collective, we're, we're going to do this, we're all going to make it to use one of the memes, Uh underlies a lot of this stuff i think it you know i've seen this used elsewhere but i think yeah everything is kind of a meme coin or a meme stock these days and it for a lot of people it's just about ratcheting up the amount of attention so that you can get in and out at the right time uh, as the value sort of uh, crests and then declines with that attention i think also there's like you know there's a whether it's like for example the attempts to shoehorn populism into this, there's an attempt to do that with Bitcoin, and there's definitely an attempt to do that with GameStop. I mean, if you looked at the trades, who made the most money? It was the hedge funds, and then it was also for institutional investors like BlackRock who engaged in the share lending program when people were trying to do their shorts or when people had their assignment or were signed their shares. It's uh, pretty much everyone other than the person who said, "I'm going to come in and make money." I mean, so people did. You know, I know people who did. I know I, you know. You can. It's pretty easy to find examples of people who came in, planned an in and an out, and made money off of GameStop. But for the most part, people were just having their lunch taken. And this whole idea that was so prevalent that what we were seeing was this plucky populist revenge being taken on Wall Street short sellers. Not at all. I mean, look, if you went to Wall Street Bets, 
you would see a lot of images of Bloomberg terminals. Who has access to Bloomberg terminals? <laughs> Who has access? <laughs> you know, if I really wanted to, when I was in school, I could have had access to it through the business school. But most people are not getting access to a Bloomberg terminal through their research universities. Access to one. They're getting it because they're a trader. I mean, and that should, if you just spend some time looking there, the people who are trading there, they're traders. They're just bored as fuck traders. That's really what it comes down to. You know, Crypto people and the meme stock people, there's this sense that they're the populist revolutionaries, perhaps, but also they, at the same time, they strive for legitimation and they want what they do to be seen as sort of uh, the new form of finance, as ascendant, and also as legally recognized. So like that ETF you mentioned was a big deal for a lot of crypto and Bitcoin people. On the other hand, they've been trying to do that for years and there was another ETF that was rejected just a couple of weeks ago, I believe. In, in sort of the rejection of, of the, that ETF, they specifically cited Tether and called it a so-called stablecoin. So, you know, that, that plays to my interest in Tether. But it also tells you that the government thinks that some of the stuff at the heart of the industry is really unstable. So you have this weird push and pull between, yes, there's the populist uprising, we're going to take over finance. But also, we want to look at the Bloomberg terminals and have everyone recognize us and and be part of mainstream finance by having a Bitcoin ETF and stuff like that. So that's where I think the sort of this this gloss of populism really fails is because most people in the end are, they they want to make money and they want their currency to be spendable and they want to be tied into the to the mainstream financial institutions if it helps them make more money. Um, I want to close by briefly talking about the metaverse. Recently, according to Reuters, quote, a patch of virtual real estate in the online world, Decentraland, sold for a record $2.4 million worth of cryptocurrency. Decentraland is a specific type of metaverse that uses blockchain. Land and other items in Decentral in land and other items in Decentraland are sold in the form of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, a kind of crypto asset. Is the metaverse this alternative digital reality to which Facebook has now dedicated its new name, Meta, is it at the end of the day, in essence, just a virtual real estate market? And if so, why buy virtual real estate instead of an NFT image of a weird monkey or whatever, given that both things are at the end of the day, just a unique set of numbers on a blockchain that create an artificial sense of scarcity and thus lay the groundwork for the appreciation of new assets. Yeah, this actually gets at a, a real issue, I think, that has been hovering over all of this and that certainly gets to me, which is that, you know, the digital world created infinite abundance in some ways. Uh, you know, you could reproduce anything with perfect fidelity, any file or anything like that. And suddenly what's happened across crypto and, and the metaverse is that this idea is, okay, we need to reintroduce scarcity and make things scarce and valuable again. This is a real concern, uh, fully articulated one by Bitcoin people. They love that there will only be 21 million uh, Bitcoin because they think that that enforced scarcity helps create and preserve value and provide a hedge against inflation. So I think that's sort of a theme we have to keep in mind when you look at this, this idea of intangible digital assets. It's A lot of it goes against what you think about in the digital world, which is that yeah, you're going to have abundance. But now we're trying to enforce scarcity through software and through sort of artificial means. And that's what I find kind of contradictory or paradoxical about all this and also unproductive. If we have um, if we have potential abundance, why not, you know, make use of that? And so 
why would someone buy a digital patch of real estate versus um, an NFT? I'm not really sure. Maybe the real estate is sort of more enticing. It belongs in an actual sort of world that you can perhaps enter and walk around in and socialize with people. But there is this idea that somehow we are, are going to be able to recreate digital scarcity and people are going to want to buy this stuff. Uh, someone the other day told me, hey, young people like Zoomers or whoever actually ascribe more value to digital assets and intangible assets than older people do. It's very possible. Older people like but millennials. The idea that you're, <laughs> yeah. The idea, older millennials, yeah, the, us elders. But the idea that you're going to sort of, that you're going to make someone want to pay as much for a house in, in in a virtual world or in like the new second life, which already did this stuff 10 years ago, uh, seems pretty dubious to me. I think you'll see a lot of big sales that get a lot of reporting and coverage like that one. Uh, and that are sort of stunt like, but the notion that we're going to sort of en masse convert to virtual property holders when it really does nothing for most of us, except enmesh us in a speculative economy, I think is, is troubling and maybe hopefully wrong too. Hopefully we don't all go down that path, but I think it's pretty troubling. And, and a theme you've been hitting all along, Jacob, real estate markets developing in the metaverse as perverse and bizarre as it seems, they don't seem so different from today's real real estate markets, nearly total indifference to the role played by homes in housing human beings. Or what's the difference again between the artificiality of Bitcoin's market cap and Tesla's market cap, or the trajectory of an entire stock stock market propped up entirely by central bank-issued liquidity. It's another case of all of this seeming so weird, but also then so weird and fake and unfair in a way that's perfectly suited for this moment. Yeah. I mean, we are in a massive asset bubble, and over the past 30 years, almost every single major policy regarding the economy has been oriented to just sustain that bubble, it feels like. And so what better way to cap off the last few years of that bubble than to have it uh, charged by um, what can really be summed up as uh, video game rewards and trading cards uh, that (laughs) are somehow going to revolutionize the system. Maybe they will revolutionize the system and then they'll bring it all down. You know, I would that would be nice because I think also the contradictions. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. There is a real risk. That the systemic risk that like stable coins and cryptocurrencies pose is not really just to the crypto space, but to the asset bubble, right? And that we've just all kind of accepted that there has there's a massive asset bubble and you prop you maybe you deflate one part at a time, but you don't actually deflate the whole thing because that'd be hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars lost, maybe to, in the worst case. But um I, you know, I just don't it's getting to the point I don't really see what else you do, right? The United States is clearly not going to go down the path of China, for example, and do sort of like controlled demolition of certain firms and certain industries. Um, And so it's also not going to go down the route that I would like it to see as a first step, which is like, listen to the reformists who are offering you an alternative to the guillotine for now, right, which is like pare back some of the some of the largest, uh, you know, uh, speculators and um, and agents of discord in this bubble. And so what it's likely is going to happen, it's just going to burst, you know, at some point, whether it's going to be because of crypto or something else, who knows? Yeah, what what some people in economics call contagion, I think, is a real risk, which is like, you know, the crypto bubble bursts, and then you have contagion to other markets, other industries, things like that. A month or two ago, people were really watching China. And I think China is, of course, still important and worth watching. But 
first they kicked out all the miners and then they this huge developer uh, a real estate developer physical world real estate developer called Evergrande has started to, to collapse in sort of slow motion you know it's like if uh, Berkshire Hathaway or something started to collapse and one concern is that uh, Tether in particular actually has exposure to a lot of toxic Chinese corporate debt. There's debate about whether they actually hold Evergrande debt. They won't say. <laughs> but you have things like, <laughs> of course Whoa. they won't say. Yeah. Um, but you have things like uh, China is uh, is in the, someone who, with a better handle of things could define it better than me, but they're in some early stage of a of an economic crisis. And whether it, it gets really bad it is remains to be seen. They're trying to unwind some of Evergrande's commitments. Evergrande itself has Ponzi scheme elements, but that you could go into that another time. And then you have things like here in the US, obviously, or just globally, you have a crypto bubble worth over $2 trillion. That's a lot of money. And that, it may not go down to zero, but it could. I mean, like, houses are actually worth something at the end of the day. Or even Bernie Madoff was able to, they were able to recover something like $17 billion to, to return to his victims. With crypto, some of the stuff is going to go down to zero. And I think the question is, what what's the exposure? Uh, how severe and dramatically does that happen? And what other industries and uh, and countries and markets does that flow into? Any final parting shots? Yeah, I've, um, <laughs> I I think that you know what it would take for me to convert to a, to a Bitcoin evangelist is um, five thousand coins deposited deposit into my wallet DMing for details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I always say I, I need a gif of that scene from um, the Michael Clayton movie where uh, George Clooney's like, I'm not the guy you kill, I'm the guy you buy off. <laughs> I joke about that sometimes. I need that gif when I, for when I talk to coiners online who think that I'm just a shill for fiat. <laughs> well, Edward Angueso Jr. and Jacob Silverman, thank you both very much. Thank you for having us. It was really fun talking to you. It was fun. Thank you. Edward Angueso Jr. is a tech reporter at Vice Motherboard and a co-host of the podcast This Machine Kills. Jacob Silverman is a staff writer at The New Republic working on a book about cryptocurrency and fraud with Ben McKinsey. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that capitalist production develops technology and the combining together of various processes into a social whole only by sapping the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the laborer. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Real Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review there. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends to check out the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>